Southern Skies. Online Media. Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's ultimate CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Try it free for the first 30 days. OzRunways.com And by the Australian Aerobatic Academy, the leaders in primary and advanced flight training at Bankstown and Wollongong. See how they can take your proficiency to the next flight level at aeroacademy.com.au Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 115 of Australia's Aviation Show. Well, I guess it's our final show of 2013. In fact, well, I'll tell you what, it's just as well because I'm exhausted, and I'm Steve Vischer, and the equally exhausted Grant McHeron joins me. How are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate, not too bad. Uh, I'd love to say that all the uh, exhaustion was purely due to work, but uh, fortunately, some of it's actually been to a bit of partying lately as well. We've uh, been pretty social over Christmas, so uh, I, I'm kind of thinking that New Year's Eve could be a really good time just to kick back, have a couple of beers and maybe even just pass out just right on midnight. Yes, well just make sure that you've uh, you know got the show notes in this episode released before you do that Grant. I, I've seen you drink beer once or twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's not until later on into the six pack that I start to forget about typing. Now, uh, I'll tell you what geez, there's lots of stuff going on. This is going to be very much a uh, housekeeping episode here. We've got lots of content that's been stored in bits and pieces over the course of 2013 and we're going to uh, sort of clear the decks a little bit before that Grant. I think we need to talk about some other things. You know what? I think we should take a little trip down memory lane, don't you? In fact, oh, in fact, let's go back. I'm thinking more 64 or so episodes where, you know, something, I think at the start of episode 51, I think we started by talking about this. Yes, we'll regather your thoughts and uh, Grant, let's just tell our listeners right at the top of the show what you've been doing over Christmas. Oh, you know, hacking Santa's sleigh, um, kicking back, uh, working a lot in the office with the balloon. Oh. Oh. Oh, you're meaning that. Yes. Yeah, I, I proposed to Kit. Yeah. And like a complete crazy lady, she said yes. So, yes, congratulations, yeah. mate. I haven't got, she seems like such a normal and well-adjusted young lady too. I know. Where'd she go wrong? But, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, she's she's uh, going to get married to a you know self-confessed airplane geek, aeroneurophocosis suffering balloonatic. February 2012, that's when we're going to put it all together at this stage. That's awesome, mate. I love it. Hmm. February 2012. Yes, I am an evil man. Now, February 2012, you said, McCarran, and I note with interest that February 2014 is quickly approaching and you're still not married. What's going on? Give us an update. Uh, well, at this stage, uh, we pushed it to 2014. Uh, <laughs> you're an evil man, Vicia. <laughs> oh, I spent an hour producing um, that today. <laughs> Yeah, uh, basically uh, 2012 just wasn't going to work out in terms of funding and things like that, uh, working flat out but not getting a heck of a lot of money for it. Uh, the usual thing, working in aviation, you never get paid a lot. But, um, yeah, so we pushed back. We even debated about eloping, but uh, Kit's mother would probably um, kill us if we did. So uh, the stars are aligning and uh, her family's all getting together in February 2014 near Canberra in rural New South Wales. They're going to be uh, out there about 40 minutes out of Canberra and uh, yeah we've decided oh what the heck let's combine it together now I don't think we can get away 
with moving this one, mate. So I think it's definitely going to be in February. Uh, invitations have gone out uh, mostly to family and a few um, close friends. And yeah, it's going to happen, I'd say. Well, okay. So you know, I, I tell you what, now there's going to be all sorts of uh, drones overhead because we are aviation, you know, podcasting celebrities, Grant. So I, I imagine everybody, you know, all the paparazzi will be there, surely. Uh, they could very well try to be, but uh, we do have the uh, the internet blocker activated and the drone <laughs> shield will be in place. Otherwise, uh, a, a certain lovely young lady will probably kill me. Well, congratulations, Grant, and the studio audience is here. <laughs> About bloody time. <laughs> Oh, come on. It took us forever to get around to getting engaged. I mean, you know, we could have tried to make it even longer till we got the actual marriage happening. <laughs> Absolutely. And in fact, it's only uh, three to your wedding's actually only three days after my 20th wedding anniversary. All I can say is hopefully I have not jinxed myself. I was thinking of when you pl- when I heard you playing that, I'm like, oh, no, he's meaning the marriage. Oh, no, it's really that. Oh, did we say February 2012? Oh, my. Um, yeah, I really hope I haven't just jinxed myself by uh, talking about it on the show. Well, congratulations, mate. And our listeners should know that that, uh, that joke about counting about how many episodes since episode 51, well, I, I needle grant about that, what, about probably every other month, don't I, mate? Yeah, yeah, there's quite often a reference about how long ago was it now that we uh, had this discussion? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I really didn't realise it would been that long. <laughs> uh, dear. Well, congratulations to you and commiserations to Kid. I think, uh, well, yeah, she's been with you a long time, mate. She should know what she's in for by now. Yeah, you'd think, you'd think, but she's still going ahead with it anyway, so <laughs> hey, what the heck? <laughs> oh, good on her. She's a very brave lady. Indeed. Okay. Oh, well, enough fun and games uh, needling Grant about all things uh, matrimonial. Let's get on with the episode. Coming up. Yeah, uh, please. Let's talk flying. Let's talk flying. Let's Come talk on. flying. Okay. Coming up in this now, as I said, it's going to be uh, very much a housekeeping episode. And uh, a lot of our co-hosts uh, feature in this episode. We're going to be going uh, all, you know, even as far back as Avalon. We've also got some content from Ozfly. Back at Avalon, uh, myself and Anthony Crichton-Brown spoke to Chris Baru. Now, uh, many of our listeners who've listened to this show for a long time will know what high regard I hold uh, Chris Baru in. In, and uh, we actually recorded a video interview with him, which uh, I don't know whether we ended up putting out on the stream, but uh, I've cut down the audio today. It's a fantastic interview. And actually, Chris uh, talks about the fact that, amongst other things, that Avalon was to be his last uh, big time air show. He's only doing the local stuff now in South Australia since we recorded that, which is a bit of a shame. But he's been on the circuit for a long time. Chris Brew, for those who don't know, is uh, 13 times Australian aerobatic champion. Now, uh, also, Grant, uh, you uh, grabbed a few interviews up at Ozfly before I managed to uh, arrive on scene, and uh, one of the people you spoke to there was uh, Bevan Anderson from Evplan, an occasional uh, advertiser here on the program. Uh, Peter Edwards you spoke to from Cirrus, and also Sue Woods from Jabiru. Now, uh, Michael Lee, our reporter over there in South Australia, has also uh, just been doing, uh, just for a bit of fun, has been recording some uh, model aircraft people, Grant. In fact, uh, people doing uh, rubber band aircraft launches or something. Yeah, really cool stuff, mate. I uh, remember following up on this a very long time ago. When I was just a kid and reading about long duration free flight with a very, very, very micro light rubber band powered aircraft, including some that, you know, the, the wings were actually made out of mylar film that was uh, done like a soap bubble onto the um, very light metal wing design. And it was just amazing stuff. And, and Mike has found some folks who are doing it here in Australia these days and uh, has recorded some fantastic content with them. Now, also coming up a bit later in the show, uh, Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand podcast. Now, you may remember that we had Dave on the show a little bit earlier in uh, 2013, and we uh, talked about the uh, you know some ideas about doing some uh, more work with Dave uh, from time to time. Well, uh, you know, you know, Grant, I'm very good at finding uh, work for other people to do. In fact, we've got Dave to do an interview for us with somebody uh, over there in New Zealand uh, talking about the local aviation scene over there. 
Now, I can't even pronounce the town, so I'm going to get you to do that. Mate, you're so good at giving uh, other people work. You got Dave to do the interview with Peter Daniel, CEO of Air Wakatipu in uh, Queenstown in New Zealand, down the South Island there. And I wound up doing the edit, and now I'm winding up introducing it because you can't pronounce Wakatipu. Yeah, well, I thought it was. I always thought it was Waikatipu, but then again, Grant, you know, I'm, I'm not from New Zealand. I am from Box Hill. Yeah, well, it's W-A-K-A-T-I-P-U, not W-A-I, which would be Y. Oh, so, you crazy New Zealanders, you've got it's like you've got a different word for everything. Yeah, because it's pronounced differently. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Also, Damien Rose uh, joins us now. Damien uh, is our Queensland reporter, and uh, a couple of months ago, he was uh, up there recording an interview with the guys from Caribou Cargo, a really interesting uh, interview there, uh, interview with Paul Strike. And, uh, boy, he's done some interesting things, Grant. In fact, uh, he also mentions in that interview, as you'll hear, he spent a short amount of time working for uh, Buffalo Joe up there in uh, Canada. And, uh, oh, wow. That's really interesting, Grant, because, uh, you know, Santa was very good to me this year, and I had actually ended up with a... Uh, Buffalo Airways uh, windsheeter, which I'm wearing right now. Hey, well, there you go. It uh, must be cold this uh, end of year because it looks like a pretty thick windsheeter to me. It's it's very heavy. I'll tell you what, uh, made for the Canadian winter, I'd say, which means, uh, you know, it'll it'll kill the, even the coldest <laughs> conditions down here in Melbourne. We've also got uh, lots of listener mail this time, some shout outs, even another competition with our friend Owens Up, who's been busy publishing yet another ebook. So, Grant, let's get into it. Lead on, McDuff. I'm here with uh, Anthony Crichton-Brown, and we're here with Chris Baru. G'day, Chris. G'day, Steve. How are you? I'm very well. Welcome to Avalon. Luckily, the skies have cleared. It was a little uh, dark earlier in the week, but I guess that's going to let you do the high show or, you know, whatever version of it you call it. Yes. Yes, it was a bit uh, sort of challenging at the beginning, but now it's cleared. The sky's blue sky. Group captain's weather, Anthony. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) uh, no, it's good because it really shows the aeroplane. The smoke stands out. Uh, A lot of entertainment here. It's uh, full on. Yep. And you're doing the Sky Blazers routine with uh, Warren? No, unfortunately not. We haven't been asked to do that. There's other uh, imports that are are doing their thing and uh, there's just not enough time, you know, particularly with airlines coming and going. They're very limited on time. But what, what you'll see is very good. So here at Avalon, obviously, it's a very tightly controlled uh, operation. So does that limit any, you know, does it place any limitations on the routine you can do? Do you have to cut it short or can you basically give the whole routine and and that's that? No. Well, in my case, I had to cut it short because uh, they were pushing for time. And uh, even today, I I only had about two minutes because the roulettes were coming in. Uh, But that's how it is. You know, they plan it to to the minute. It's real Air Force stuff, if you know what I mean. How long have you been doing this particular routine for? Because you've been doing aerobatic competitions for such a long time. Is this a new thing, or do you develop it as a continuing developing um, routine? Uh, well, I've been flying aerobatics since '61, and uh, of course started in chipmunks, and then into Victor Air Tours, and then Fuji aircraft, and then uh, from there uh, we went into pit specials. I went overseas and met Art Scholl, flew his pits. And that got me interested in the pit special. I wasn't interested in monoplanes. The pits looks good at air shows. It presents well. It's not a, comp- a real competition air- aircraft anymore, as you probably know. The monoplanes have taken over there. But but it's you know it's a, the kids love it. Everybody there's nostalgia when you uh, present it, and uh, it does present well. And uh, this particular aircraft, uh, Super Stinker, we built that about five and a half years ago. Um, it's the only one in Australia. It's uh, over 300 horsepower, 
at um, it's the paint job is fantastic as you've probably seen fantastic and uh, really stands out and um, it, you know it, I, I, everybody loves to see it but the routines Anthony are, uh, of course they're more modified now you can do more because of the uh, structure of the aeroplane the power that you've got so you know you, you sort of uh, build on what you the basic stuff that, that we learnt years ago. Just going back a step in what you said earlier, we know Art Scholl because he was uh, he's famously in the credits for the end of Top Gun because he was uh, killed filming some of the aerial sequences for Top Gun and a spinning sequence where uh, Maverick has to eject out of the F-14. When they shot the film of that, Art Scholl went out in his pits and did inverted spinning to get the footage and then uh, tragically crashed whilst filming it and so he's in the closing credits. So I'm interested to know a little bit, a bit about that because I, I heard that you uh, you flew Art's pits yes. and that was in, was that in France in one of the comps? France, it's still under province yep. at the uh, World Championships in 1972. The aircraft impressed me. It was a biplane and uh, and also at that time the uh, single-seater pits 200 horsepower was uh, first displayed at, cha- at the World Championships and it performed well because uh, an American won in the pits. But Art was there cutting bits out of his front seat to lighten the aeroplane up. He was cutting the, frame, the, the seat frame out and I said, hey, could I, would you mind if I had a go at it? He said, yeah, mate, cool. it's, you know, it's, it's got miles per hour on the clock, so he, you know, he told me what speeds I should be doing. And uh, he was you know, very obliging, uh, Joel. He was a very pleasant person, and he had his little dog called Aileron with him. <laughs> so, no, he's a character. He used to fly that uh, super chipmunk, didn't he? Yeah, the super chipmunk. And right. Aileron used to go with him in his air show display yeah. in the cockpit. <laughs> and how did you go going from your... Were you over there in a Victor? No, I was flying I was flying as Lynn Trenomaster. How did you go jumping out of that straight into a pits? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> it was an eye-opener because the Zlin um, Trenomaster, uh, it was a French one, yeah. and uh, it had a big red bulb on the instrument panel... If you exceeded the, the G limitations of it, it'll, it'll glow red, you know, and you sort of back off a bit. But uh, what happened then, we were going to fly that in the, in the World Championships, but what happened was two Frenchmen were killed in one because the wing it had stub wings and the wings hung out from there. The wing came up and sat, it, it parted, you know, the bolts let go and the wing came up and, and came down on the cockpit and they couldn't bail out. Right. So they spun in and were killed. And uh, we got a, a telegram from the Air Attaché's office to say that all Zlins were grounded. So that put us out of the championship. So that's when I decided to fly as many aeroplanes as I could. Made most of it. And I flew most of them, yeah. So, Chris, can you tell us a bit about the routine that you're uh, going to do here at Avalon today? Well, I was going to uh, spiral around the flag drop. The uh, You know Dave Benson? He's been uh, here at the inception of uh, air shows. Uh, in 1992, that's when it all started, and I was at, at the inception of it all as well. So we were both, you know, old hands at it. And he was going to make this his last parachute drop of the uh, the largest flag in Australia. And I was going to spiral around him in tribute. And uh, following that, I was going to dive in and do a bracket of low-level aerobatics. But poor Dave passed away three weeks before the air show, and his son Rodney, who's a accredited parachutist decided to uh, fly in memory you know as a memorial to his father and drop his ashes over the Avalon and he did that 
So an emotional moment. It's a spectacular to see, but an emotional moment yeah. at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Now, of course, uh, one of the things you're famous for is doing the inverted ribbon cut. Uh, I assume you're not doing that here at Avalon, unfortunately. They didn't want me to do that. Uh, I think uh, Skip Stewart, the American, has uh, he was asked to do the ribbon cut. Okay, so are you still practicing that manoeuvre? We uh, last time I saw you do it was uh, at Parafield last year, and you, you had a. I think it was pretty windy that day. I think you had two or three passes, and you, you nailed it on the third one. I think if memory serves. Practice passes, that's all. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> how, do you, how do you convince people to come and hold the poles? Well, no, we, we put them up oh, and okay. tie them up with guy. Yeah, right. yeah. You tie the people up, or you tie the people through the poles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> have you ever had one? We talked about on an earlier podcast about one where you might have uh, made contact with the ground, but have you since then had any scares, or have you been? No, that, that time it was at um, Tasmania where I was rushed. After I arrived in Tasmania, I was rushed and they said, you know, you're on, on stage. I said, righto. But I forgot to put the fuel cap on the auxiliary outlet. And when I rolled inverted on takeoff, the cap went pa- straight past my nose. And I, I thought, hell, I better grab it in case it rattles back into the and jams controls. So I reached up to grab it while I was upside down, about 20 feet off the ground, and the throttle came back. Yeah. <laughs> the aeroplane just sank straight into the ground. So I did a wheels up landing in the pits. There's <laughs> <laughs> not everybody that can say lay claim to that one. No, no, not in the pits, anyhow. <laughs> Now, Chris, uh, you've been doing these air shows around the country and I guess around the world for many, many years, but uh, I hear around the traps today that this might be the last time we see you doing this sort of air show. That's right, Steve. This is my last international air show, and uh, but I'll be doing the locals, Yep. but uh, no more international, that's it. So Murray Bridge, we'll have to get it to Murray Bridge to uh, see you out there? Murray Bridge, Parafield, yeah, there's a few other little towns that I go to. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're very fortunate here at Playing Crazy Down Under that we actually have a pits in the fleet and we have its pilot there, so if you need a protege, someone who can learn the ribbon cut... Uh, um, Anthony, I think you're the man. Uh, I think I'm a long way away from that. I'm still trying to figure out how to land it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a little bit, you know, skittish on the ground, but, but I'm, I'm sure Anthony could manage it. I'm sure he could. He's being sure. a bit modest. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're certainly in it. The pitch is an aeroplane that once you fly it once, you never want to fly anything else, and everything else is just disappointing afterwards. And I think that's just universally said by most pitch pilots, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's true. A biplane, you just can't get down to your system once you... Yeah. But particularly a pitch, once you're flying it, Oh, you fall in love with it. I mean, that's what happened when I met Art Scholes. We weren't looking at pits, but when I flew it, I said, that's the thing I want. I've got to have one. Of course, this juncture in my flying career, I'd be happy to fly anything, much less a pits. <laughs> well, Anthony will fly around in one of his jets. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about that at, uh, on a later podcast. Yeah, we've got lots of stories to do with Anthony, but uh, we'll focus on the pits and the aeros today. Uh, Chris, I, I know I told you this the last time I interviewed you, but it's always a thrill. I've been watching you for many years. My father and I always used to come and watch you every air show. If we knew you were there, we would be there. And it's a thrill to talk to you. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us again. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. You're listening to Ozfly Radio, thanks to Aero Refuelers and QBE Insurance, Australia's private and sport aviators together under one sky. Bevan, how are you going today? Absolutely fantastic, thanks Grant. Excellent. Now Bevan, big congratulations. Avplan, I hear, has just recently been approved by CASA as an EFB and a source of all uh, charting and so on. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So we, uh, after months of work, we've finally achieved that uh, certification milestone. Um, so now you can use 
Avplan EFB in the cockpit is a replacement for your paper maps and Ursa and DAPs and all that other documentation that you need to carry. So, so suddenly my uh, 10 kilo bag of paperwork that I have to supposedly lug into my hot air balloon can be thrown out as uh, useless ballast. Exactly, it certainly can. You can carry sort of one or two EFBs. Excellent. And uh, yeah, I, I imagine there was an awful lot of effort in that. Yes, it was. We had to produce a mountain of uh, paperwork to satisfy CASA, <laughs> do a couple of demonstrations of our sort of processes we use to manage the data. Yep. Um, but once it was done, uh, they managed to push it through their lawyers awfully fast. And Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, here we are today. It's absolutely wonderful. I think they and air services are looking forward to cutting back on killing a few trees every week. Well, exactly, yes. <laughs> so what else can you tell us about Avplan? It's, um, I believe you just passed your two-year anniversary recently as well. That's correct, yes. We've been out in the wild now for two years and one month. It's uh, yeah, a good milestone to be passed. We continue to, to grow ever bigger. Uh, we have so much fun developing the software and talking to our customers. You know, we love every minute of, of what we do. Um, we recently uh, expanded into the United States. We were at Oshkosh um, a month ago yep. to launch our sort of US product which was well received and it's just it's exciting times it's absolutely fantastic so Oshkosh having been there in 2011 I know it blew my mind being there and uh, getting through everything so just uh, how'd it go for you did you actually get to see any of it or were you stuck in your booth uh, pretty much stuck in the booth the whole <laughs> time uh, but it's just huge we had yep. There was 12,000 aircraft flew into the show. Uh, that's more than the Australian GA fleet. Um, it's just a sea of aircraft. But after we set up the booth uh, before the first day, we were, we were able to go down and stand at the ILS antenna on one of the runways and just watch all the arrivals come in. And we yep. spent the afternoon just sitting. All these sort of potential plane crashes happen. It was just <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I, I flew in with the Bonanzas and then I've uh, I've hung out there and, and sat at the end of, the, of one of the rows in the North 40, drinking a beer with some of the locals and enjoying and, uh, yeah, all but holding up the cards. <laughs> yeah, it was just a, it's an amazing experience. Nothing can yeah. prepare you to 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 see what it really is. And and I I, met, I got out and saw a little bit of the air show, um, but not much. Yeah. The just the the amount of aircraft on display, it's phenomenal. Oh. And if you if you like, I love antique aircraft, and uh, yeah. you know, I managed to watch. 35 uh, Beach 34 mentors flying in formation nice. and that was, they just kept coming in waves and waves and waves it was just <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's excellent isn't yeah, it yeah. absolutely wonderful yeah, I, I like that the uh, antiques are down there near the gyrocopters, gyro and uh, so I like to go and uh, check out both those, and then uh, f take the uh, train or walk all the way up to Warbirds just for a bit more. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have a goal to grow to, and we're hoping that Ozfly <laughs> gets there. But meanwhile, back to reality and. Uh, yes. mate, you must be really, really happy that every time you get to go flying, it's, uh, you know, oh, what a shame, I've got to test that new feature in Avplan. Well, that's right. You know, every time I, I go flying, I get to play with the app. It, it's more, I spend a lot of time sitting in the back of, or next to other people when they're flying, so yep. I, we, can, we can test new things out. Um, a lot of the development, to be honest, was done not in an aircraft. It was a yep. period where I wasn't actually doing much flying. Okay. A lot of the development was done in a car. Oh, okay. And... 
it was after Avplan was actually out there that I started really using it in an aircraft and thought, this is actually kind of neat. <laughs> I'm kind of enjoying this. Yeah. You know, whoever thought of this really had the, you know, it was switched on. Excellent. And uh, are you able to say, uh, uh, give us a bit of a feature overview of uh, what's what's the functionality in Avplan yeah, now well, that it is in EFB? Yeah, certainly. So what we've done today is uh, we combine all the VFR and IFR maps into, into two maps. So a VFR map and an IFR map, and it chooses uh, the most applicable thing to show you. So there's no fumbling around for maps in the cockpit or, or, or trying to select which map you want to view on your EFB. Um, you just sort of look at a VFR map and go flying. So we flew up from Melbourne on Wednesday afternoon. I didn't change a map. Yeah, very and it nice. just showed me, you know, the, the chart that I want. And then over those maps we overlay a whole bunch of information. We put weather radar, lightning, active restricted areas, uh, METARs, SIGMETs and stuff, and you can choose to view all this information or not, but it yep. means that you have sort of the ultimate in situational awareness. Yeah, you can layer it as detailed or as light as you want. That's Ex- great. Exactly. Excellent. I like the changing between maps automatically. That's very handy. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a really neat feature. We developed that technology with the expansion in the US, and that's the kind of stuff that you can expect to see us do because we're, we, we're competing with the Jeppesons of the world yep. these days. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, as a balloonatic, uh, when I'm flying, I'm primarily using a like one to, two, one to 50 thou topographical map. Uh, have you got any plans to add topos in? Yes, we do. Um, we'll be adding those in and we actually had the capability today of putting whatever maps you have oh, okay. if they're georeferencing yourself as well so if you've got a specialised chart that you want to put in yep. you can put that in there as well and is that scan graphic or vector graphic it needs to be a, 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 a georeference TIFF file or okay. a PDF okay I get you interesting Okay, anything else you'd like to say about Evplan and where you're going oh look it's it's early days in the EFB scene really you know we've these things have only been around for the last few years so they've had a phenomenal uptake in Australia and around the world and we're only just starting to scratch the surface of their capability Um, so it's it's an exciting business to be in and and we love doing what we're doing and we love talking to our customers so if you're out there come and say hi and if you've got any ideas of things you'd like to see come and talk to us and and we'll look forward to doing these things for you Okay Bevan, thank you very much for coming on Radio Ozfly No worries, thanks for having me Grant I'm joined here with Peter from Cirrus. Peter, welcome to Ozfly Radio. Good morning to the Ozfly event. Great event, guys. Peter Edwards, how did you get into aviation? Very long time ago. First flight was at two in a chipmunk. Uh, don't remember it, <laughs> but uh, from university when I started flying back in the 70s, always been a passion. Okay. And so what kind of aircraft have you flown? Uh, have you ever gone back to a chipmunk and flown that? Chippy's one of the few that I haven't. I learned at uh, Royal Newcastle, so we do like the Tiger, and I got to fly Johnny Cameron's recently. Um, I guess my passion was Barron's. Uh, needs to be serious these days, and it is. <laughs> but we've flown King Air Citations, and I think my favourite aeroplane's flying the DC-3s with Jack oh, Curtis. Yeah. Yes, uh, I know Captain Jack. I uh, met him when I was living at Sydney and was helping out as a gopher on the uh, Lockheed 11 restoration for Laurie Ogle and met Captain Jack when he came in to de- get type-checked on the Electra. Uh, it helped him out on a couple of DC-3 runs. I, th- I thought it was a privilege to be on the flight, on the cockpit of the DC-3 uh, as we were taxiing around Bankstown until I discovered my real reason for being there. I had to man the wobble pump and get things going. But that was still a lot of fun. 
<laughs> it is. You're bringing back memories there with the wobble pumper. I think it's the only reason he got me on board. But we have made it from Perth to Sydney in the DC3. Awesome. All great fun. Yeah, he's a very, very canny gentleman, that one. He so is indeed. Now you're here with Cirrus. How long have you been involved with Cirrus? I've been involved with Cirrus for about two years now. Um, I came to this event last year with Graham just to give him a bit of a hand. Uh, Graham's in the States, so I'm uh, virtual Graham for Mr. Cirrus at the <laughs> event this year. Having said that, he's given us the uh, latest Gen 5 22 Turbo, so mm. probably the nicest toy in Australia to play with. It sounds like it. I haven't actually had a chance to see one, but I'm, I'm told they're pretty good. I've been up in a couple of earlier generation Cirrus, or Cirri, uh, including one of the first ones to get the Integra R9 in it way back then. Uh, how do you find the G5? What's what's the key features for that one? Uh, well, it's pretty funny when um, uh, Dale Klapmeyer was going through the 700 design changes in it. There's a couple of very significant ones. Um, it's five seats is a, a big deal. It has 150 knot flap speed these days. But the thing that the audience stood up and cheered the most about was that it has uh, little access doors to check the tyre pressures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a handy thing. <laughs> Uh, it has a 200-pound gross weight increase, so it's a 3,600-pound aeroplane these days, which probably makes it the only real four-seat, full-fuel and baggage GA aircraft in the world. That's very uh, handy. Yeah, it's quite significant. Um, it doesn't look visually very different from the latest of the G3s. Um, the Garmin Perspective suite in it is a very advanced avionics suite. I certainly like bagging my mates that uh, fly A380s about who's got the best and we've got fairly similar bragging yep. rights. Um, it has the latest uh, active flight control so that if you bank past 45 degrees it gives you a push back and says hey do you really want to do this cool. and if you do okay and if you don't bit of a reminder you've got to 45 degrees. Same with the stall no autopilot stall anymore it's a very clever sophisticated set of software in the, the latest, um, and it's Garmin 1000, but Cirrus's perspective yep. is its licensed version. Now, does this one have the famous wings leveler get me uh, flat, straight level button? <laughs> Called many things, and I just call it the Jesus button. <laughs> um, but yes, the blue button is, uh, and the best demo we give is, you know, you're sitting there, you're happy, okay, so I'll pull full back stick full right or left stick and then put my hands on my head and that usually gets you to say Jesus and at this stage we press the blue button and the aeroplane recovers to straight and level. That's pretty nice. With no more input, hands still on head and you needing a change of clothing. <laughs> and perhaps some new velour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Steady on, it's a serious, we do the leather here. <laughs> oh sorry, sorry, of course, yes. That, good move because that means you can just wipe everything off. Yeah, easy to wipe out. <laughs> <laughs> they thought about it at the factory. <laughs> Very good move. So um, now I know one of the things in an earlier model Cirrus was you could uh, take off and be heavier than you could land and on some short flights with we had a situation where we had three rather heavy boys on board we had some fuel we needed to stooge just for a little bit to burn off a bit of fuel before we came into land um, is the G5 I've heard that it, it uh, you know, has has the uh, the takeoff and landing weights pretty equal or takeoff and landing weight are the same which is the same uh, 3600 pounds sorry yeah. I'm not metric um, the <laughs> Americans have got to me um, but 
uh, takeoff and landing weights are the same. They don't specify a ramp weight, but okay. basically it's hard to load beyond the 3,500 pounds. Most excellent. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, let us know? Yes, there's no free demo flights. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly uh, we're happy to talk to uh, and show anybody the aeroplane. I know this is light sport aircraft, and we see some absolutely beautiful aircraft there. But Cirrus uh, hope that we've designed one of the most sophisticated pilot-friendly and safest aeroplanes in the sky, so you're welcome to have a look. Probably not a real lot. The you know, Cirrus uh, have come from the American equivalent of light sport aircraft, and you know they're aviation enthusiasts yep. from the earliest Cirrus right through to the jet. Excellent. It's all about aeroplanes. And are you able to say anything about the jet? I can tell you a little bit about the jet. We'll have the mock-up at Avalon in 2015. First order is uh, set to be delivered in October of 15, which is in America. Yep. There are over 600 paid-up orders. It was over 640 last time okay. uh, I saw them. The factory's finished its flight certification, and we, um, uh, I expect that we'll see them here between 2016 and 2017 in Australia. And we've got at least three customers at Regalia that have jet orders, so Excellent. they're very serious about it. Okay, Peter, well, thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, talking to us about Cirrus. And uh, where can people find you in uh, the Ozfly buildings and so on? Uh, we're down beside the main hangar, just to the right-hand side as you enter the main hangar. And uh, thanks to you guys from Plane Crazy. It's uh, good to get a bit of aviation uh, <laughs> buffering. Yeah, Please. it's definitely a lot of fun, mate. Definitely a lot Cheers. of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, Ozfly 2013, we've got our next person to chat to, and it's Sue Woods from Jabiru. Sue, welcome to Radio Ozfly. Hi, Grant. It's good to be here. Now, Sue, you're part of the family that uh, brought Jabiru into the world, I believe. Yes, that's right. I'm the uh, firstborn to uh, Rodney Stiff and the uh, designer and developer of Jabiru. Uh, I've been with him for about um, five years now, five coming on six years at, up at Jabiru. And uh, Rodney was getting um, tormented by a lot of Jabiru customers asking him what his succession plan was. So uh, I thought I'd come up to Bundaberg and give it a go and see if I could take on the reins and uh, so he can practice retirement. Now, uh, you've been with Jabiru for five or six years, but Jabiru is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Jabiru started at the airport in um, 1988. And uh, prior to that, uh, father was building his first prototypes under the clothesline in the carport, <laughs> so, under the washing. So uh, that was a good good move to go out to the airport. And uh, from then, yes, he's um, had a hard struggle for 25 years, but um, he's still there. Now you're doing the engines, you're doing the airframes, you've got the two-seaters uh, and also the four-seater, both of which I believe can be uh, RAOS or VH registered. Yes, the uh, two-seaters can be RAOS registered, the four-seater has to be VH registered and you must have your private pilot's license for that one. So there you go, you've got the RA and you've got the VH and mm -hmm. now you're introducing a twin. Yes, yes, the Twins um, given us a bit of excitement in the last couple of weeks. It's uh, had its first test flight in South Africa and it's, um, it was a very unexciting test flight, which is a good one, good test flight to have. <laughs> yeah, predictable and, and gentle. That's right, yes. Yeah. 
Uh, we do have it on, on video, the video clip of it on our, our computer over at our stand if anyone wants to see it, if they haven't already seen it on YouTube. Okay. Now it's uh, being built and tested in South Africa or is yeah. some of it here? Yes, uh, we developed all the moulds and made the parts and did all the structural load tests at the factory in Bunnaberg. Then it was uh, shipped over to South Africa where Len, our dealer in South Africa, put a lot of time into making everything uh, fit perfectly and, and paint it and organise the test flying. Okay. Now, why did you need to go for a twin? Um, I, I believe it's the 430 uh, four-place aircraft, same wing, same fuselage, and yeah. but with a tapered nose and the two-engine pods on the front. Yes, that's correct. Uh, we wanted to make it um, simple. Is um, Rod has always wanted to keep things simple with with his designs. So uh, also by using the 230 fuselage or 234, 30 fuselage, uh, we, we didn't have to do a lot of uh, new structural testing. It, it's was at uh, most of it's already been done, of course, with those model aircraft. So it was simply having to do the structural testing um, of the new mounts for the engines on the firewall. Okay. And what's the, is it a need for a twin for hot and high or is it for safety over the rugged bush? Or? Yes. In, in South Africa, it's not a nice prospect to um, have to do uh, a land, uh, outfield landing with... Um, the native animals over there that are likely to have you for dinner and um, <laughs> and also the um, unfriendly um, people with with machine guns. Yeah, it's a few interesting uh, interesting skirmishes going on in various parts there. Mm. So so it's yes. primarily to give you um, a little bit more security to uh, get to get places. That's correct, and there are very high mountains over there too. Yep. To get okay. So do you are you getting much uh, interest in the twin back here in Australia? Yes, everyone's all, all very interested in, in how it's going because it's something new and, <laughs> and, and exciting. So uh, we'll hopefully be able to offer it to people here as well. They can bolt it onto their 430, and uh, though they will have to have a twin endorsement, okay, so, which is a bit of a step up from our RAA licence. Just a tad. Yes. Uh, now, without the wing engines being so far out on the wings, being pretty close to each other on the nose, mm -hmm. uh, how do you find in terms of asymmetric thrust if you lose an engine? It mustn't be too bad. Yes, it, it's very good. The um, test pilot uh, rang Rod last week and said that it was quite remarkable in that you could have hands-off flying at uh, in an asymmetric configuration. So Excellent. Yes. Okay, was there anything else you'd like to say while you're here? No, come and join us at our um, tent over at the uh, Jabiru stand. We've got sausages when the wind dies down. We'll <laughs> soak up the barbecue and um, some cake for everyone to celebrate our 25th year. Excellent. Sue, thank you so much for coming on Ozfly Radio and congratulations on 25 years of Jabiru and the introduction of the Light Twin. Thank you very much. It's a Saturday evening and I'm in the Adelaide suburb of Ingle Farm. A gathering of people takes place at the local community recreational centre. This gathering is a testament to the term big boys toys as this otherwise sporting hall used for basketball, netball and all other sports during the week is taken over and used as a model airspace. It's a flurry of third-dimensional activity. 
The ambience is an echo of multiple small electric motors in these models as enthusiasts gather to fly their remote control model aircraft and helicopters in the calm and enclosed environment of this hall. To provide some order in this space, model aircraft are flown at separate times to model helicopters, alternating every 15 minutes. The models come in all shapes, sizes and forms. A lot are kit built, whereas others are what they abbreviate as ARF, almost ready to fly, which you buy from hobby shops. 62 year old David Putterall is a regular participant to these sessions and has been attending for many years. Well, this venue here has been operating for about 30 years. Um, a gentleman by the name of Max Starrick, who's probably well known in the aero modelling circuits, um, not only Australia-wide but worldwide, started this up and um, he introduced several different classes. Sitting nearby is 53-year-old Neil Page, another regular participant. He brings his home-built remote control models for some fun, and when not indoors, he's outdoors flying larger model aircraft in more open airspace at another club. I've been modelling for about 20 odd years now so for me it's fairly simple. A beginner probably take them three to four hours to build. I can usually get one up in about an hour or so. But to get started in the hobby you need yourself, set yourself up with a good radio to start with. That's probably the most important thing is a good radio, uh, good equipment and then you just go from there. Um, you buy most of your stuff online. But it's, as I say, very important to get a good radio. Indoor remote control model flying sessions take place at recreational halls across the country. Most are regular organised events by clubs or individuals, and listings of these can be found searching the internet or listings in remote control model magazines. All in all, it's an otherwise relaxed and social evening with the odd bit of momentary drama thrown in when weight takes over lift. Unique to this session, however, is the changeover halfway in the evening at 7.30pm. That is the sound of a rubber band being wound up by a handle and the loud drone of electric motors from the previous session is replaced by repeats of that noise and silence. Free flight modelling is the building of model aircraft that are powered by mostly wound rubber bands or the occasional electric motor and have no controls on them whatsoever. This hobby continues to go on for almost a century and many older listeners may have recollections of building and flying such models in their youth. The models present tonight, both in their form and flying ability, is almost comparable to art and poetry. They're built light enough to be able to sustain powered flight for the longest duration as possible, properly trimmed to remain within a controllable boundary. They require considerable craftsmanship and a determination to get it right. Most of the models are built from balsa and covered in tissue. Um, 
the tissue can then be uh, pulled tight with dope. And then if it's, for example, a scale model, they might uh, be spray painted. Um, most of the models are built from plans, but a lot of the guys like to draw their own plans. There's a wealth of plans and forums and all on the internet that uh, you can get involved in. Um, there's several really good forums that have got um, plan galleries where if you join you can go straight in and, and decide on what type of model you want to build and then download a plan from there. Amongst this small gathering of free flights enthusiasts is 52-year-old Tim Hayward-Brown. He is notable amongst this group and across this small Australian community of free flight modellers having the honour of representing Australia in the International Free Flight Championship held in Belgrade, Serbia last year. That's the first time an Australian team has been to the World Championships for nearly 30 years, so it was a big adventure for us. Uh, the particular class, the, the actual airframe, is only 1.2 grams. The whole, uh, it's 55 centimetres wingspan, so it's quite a big model, um, and it's made of very fine... Uh, thin, thin balsa wood sheet, and uh, and covered in a very thin mylar, and and rubber powered, and uh, they can stay in the air for uh, over half an hour. And, uh, yeah, so I think it's a fascinating thing to, uh, and very much a niche. Another participant of this session is 56-year-old Steve Nelson, who comes to these flying sessions regularly. He is the only modeler here to fly both powered controlled models and many free-flight rubber band-powered models he's built himself. He is undoubtedly passionate about aviation of all forms and scales. Two weeks before this session, Steve retired as an airline pilot for Cafe Pacific to an honourable water cannon salute on his last arrival into Adelaide Airport after a 28-year career there flying Airbus and Boeing aircraft. Before that, he flew transport category aircraft for the Royal Australian Air Force. Well, you, you don't always get it right. <laughs> and that's the challenge, is uh, for something that looks so uh, deceptively simple, in some respects it's a very difficult challenge, particularly some of the scale models, uh, because some of the um, full-size replicas don't lend themselves to being flown without input. And, uh, and unlike radio, where you can correct for things that aren't right, free flight you can't. It sounds like more of a challenge than it appears. However, the satisfaction they gain from it provides an understanding of why they do it. Well, I think it's the challenge of actually um, building something, uh, either which you've designed yourself or a kit that somebody else has designed. The, the satisfaction of putting something together out of component materials and then seeing it actually fly, uh, whether it's radio control or, or free flight, which here tonight is uh, the challenge at the moment, getting something to fly without having any control once you let it go. That's the challenge and that's the satisfaction of doing it successfully. Yeah, I, the, um, the the building is part of, I think, part of the attraction of a hobby like this is the actual, the craft, the engineering, the actual building of it. So being able to build something that light, 1.2 grams. My uh, chief interest is scale models and um, just to see something that you've built from probably a three-view drawing published in a, in a magazine or on the internet and um, you build up all the structure yourself and uh, cover it all and paint it and uh, 
then you end up with this thing that comes from several flat sheets of balsa and and tissue into a thing that looks like a scale model of an aircraft. I think that's my biggest satisfaction. Although the hobby of indoor free flight modelling has been around for a century, it has slowly become a niche hobby in a niche hobby. Its future, like many traditional practical modelling hobbies, has an element of doubt towards its future. Becoming more and more, um, I don't know, specialised is the word, but the people that um, do it now, there's getting few and far between, and most of them tend to be old buggers like me, although we do have a few young ones occasionally that come along. Um, any newcomers is always welcome, and there's always someone here to um, help or advise or suggest. So anyone that wants to come along is quite welcome. We can explain whatever they need to know. Other examples of free flight modelling and more information can be found in this episode's show notes on plainecrazydownunder.com. And music is called Words by Jason Shaw, found on freemusicarchive.org. In Ingle Farm, Adelaide, South Australia, Micah Lee, Plain Crazy Down Under. pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills, and one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings, the Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Plan your flight, fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 Feet Aviation Directory. If you have a look at the Aviation Podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Peter Daniel, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. 
Thanks very much. Great to be here. You're the president of the uh, Wakatipu Aero Club, aren't you? Uh, actually, I'm not the president of the Aero Club nowadays, but I was once upon a time. The okay. Aero Club runs a commercial division, which is called Air Wakatipu, which is principally my business, and I'm the uh, CEO of that business. But prior to that time, I was the president. It's a kind of complicated role to try to fulfill both of them. So we have a president as a as the Aero Club part of it and a CEO to run the commercial op. Do you have anything to do with the Aero Club at all now? Oh, absolutely, yeah. On a day-to-day basis, we're still here every day day we just as far as the the businesses are concerned we just um, I, I run one part of it and uh, our CFI runs the, the training side of it so uh, having said that I'm multi-rolled here I just have to diverse and sort of stay committed more to the Air Wakatipu side because it's kind of where I earn my living from but the Aero Club is still very much part of that picture. Okay. To start off, how did you get into aviation and, and you know when did you learn to fly, that sort of thing? Right, okay. Uh, well, I um, I have to blame my father for that, actually. My father was a pilot, uh, trained uh, World War Two, and ended up Tiger Moths and Harvards and uh, did a bit of time in Canada uh, with his Harvard part of the training and then came back to New Zealand ready to embark on a uh, going to war, so to speak, and that was at the time when the war ended, so he never saw active service. But he always had a passion for aviation after that when I was about probably seven or eight years old. He sort of rejoined into the Aero Club movement and became the president of the Wanganui Aero Club. I spent every uh, moment, time, whatever was available, hanging on the back of him, going flying on whatever we flew. And he, yep. he moved on to becoming an um, instructor in gliders, and we had a tow plane, which at that stage was a little uh, tiger moth, and then we'd on to turn it into a proper pawnee. So we were doing both ends of it, really, the power side of it and the gliding side and going to gliding camps. So I basically, yeah, I was just brought up around aeroplanes. So when it came to 15 years of age, I was learning to fly, and at 16, I was going solo. And it's really just been around me ever since. Then I went off and did all sorts of other things, but I still uh, was wanting to keep that flying thing was still very much alive inside me. So by the time I got to about uh, my late 20s and early 30s, I was in a position to go and spend a bit more money and uh, get a private pilot's license and get involved and buy an aeroplane and all those things that normally comes about. And then at a later stage, I moved to Queenstown, more or less uh, as a lifestyle uh, opportunity and uh, First thing I did, of course, is stumped up to the Aero Club here to say, hey, I need to join the Aero Club and let's go for a fly. And they flew me into uh, uh, Milford Sound, of all places, actually. And uh, I went, wow, this is way cool. This, if I could do this as a job, that would be pretty good. So yeah. I kind of revisited my wife and said, look, I've got this brilliant idea. <laughs> I, I can make millions of dollars being a pilot flying in Queenstown. I lied through my teeth. And uh, <laughs> anyway, she accepted that initially, and uh, I went and so did my commercial. So I was I was in my 50s by the time I got to that point, but it's been an absolutely awesome opportunity to come, you know, if you like, I've had a second chance of being able to come back and do that now at a later stage, and it's just really just gone from there, really. So the actual Aero Club itself at Wakatipu, which is based at Queenstown, yeah. how, you know, how long has it been around and how many members and staff uh, are on the Aero Club? Right, uh, 19... 57, I think, is initially when it was um, there was an aero club started. Although it didn't really get a building in a in a, in a location until 1970-ish. Members built a building, which still was the one that we're in here today. The uh, trees were felled and the there were planks were formed out of the trees and the, all that sort of stuff. Uh, membership currently is around about 70 members. We have quite a few associated members. A very big part of what we do here is flight training for the commercial 
part of the uh, business for our own business, but not just that for the other operators here. Their source of pilots generally comes through the Aero Club system. There's a lot of, if you like, I'll call them transient members because they'll be members while they're training here, but then they move on to be somewhere else, either here on the field for a while and or moving on and flying in. If they're young guys, they probably want to go off and fly an airliner at some stage. So after doing a bit of time here, they'll get a job there. Some of them will come back and do a little bit in their spare time. So we, we have pretty well a steady base of around about 65 to 70 members who are, if you like to call it locals, plus the itinerants that are moving on through at any one time. Is there much other uh, general aviation going on at Queenstown Airport? Oh, yeah, lots. It's um, I don't know the stats on it, to be absolutely uh, uh, honest there, but there's all sorts of figures bandied around as to this being one, if not, it's not the largest, but I think it might be second or third in New Zealand in respect of um, aircraft movements per day. There's four flight-based companies here that are flying. Uh, their business is principally flying people from Queenstown to Milford Sound to meet up with the cruise boat over there, take their customers on the cruise boat, and then fly them back here to Queenstown. And aircraft numbers that involved in there are something around about 25 aeroplanes involved between those four companies. Then we'd probably have the same number of helicopters operating here. Uh, we have um, a skydive company called Endzone, which is a very big operator flying a couple of caravans. They're based at a little field called Jardines, which is only about a kilometre away from the main, or two kilometres away here from our main airfield, but it's still obviously in the control zone, so it's controlled by Queenstown Tower. And then we have international flights coming from Australia, and yep. then we have all the domestic flights that are coming through uh, from you know Auckland and uh, Christchurch. And Queenstown Airport is 25% owned by Auckland Airport, so okay, they yep. feed in a lot more business as well. A lot of flights every day coming and going from an international flight arriving here to us taxiing out to fly off to Milford Sound in a convoy of 10 other aeroplanes. So, fantastically busy piece of airspace. Wow, I didn't actually realise it was that busy down yeah, there. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and you've got quite a uh, interesting terrain uh, around the airport. Oh, it? yes. So, yeah, it's uh, your mountain flying from the moment you take off around here. Queenstown exists in a basin, it's 1,200 feet above sea level. Mountains that are close to us, I'm looking out the window now at the Remarkables mountain chain, which is 6,500 feet above sea level, and it's probably less than a kilometre away from me. Kind of gives you an idea of how steep it rises from the basin here. Right. And at this time of the year, of course, it's fully covered in snow, which just adds another dimension to it. Do you ever get sick of the scenery? No. <laughs> in a word, <laughs> no. Uh, it's a combination of a couple of things, actually. The, the scenery is uh, what you're looking below. Uh, the weather is the same thing. It moves around and shuffles around because we're in the mountains, and every day is different. And I could probably take today as an example. We I'd set up to talk to you a lot earlier today because we looked at the weather map and all the people that had generated the weather for us over the last couple of days said today's weather was not going to be suitable to go flying. And yet we woke up and went, yeah, you know what? It is going to be. So we all went, uh, well, some of us went and flew passengers into Milford Sound. You wouldn't know from one day to the next what was going to happen. And we have to make up a little scenario each day as to what that journey is going to be. Obviously, on a clear blue day without any clouds and any wind, it's an easy decision. But yep, yep. Lots of days in the mountains, there's all the mountaintops are covered with cloud, but that doesn't preclude us from being able to take off and still fly to our some of the destinations that we need to get to. We just need to know those valley systems and be able to do it uh, legally. So how, how many days a year would you estimate that you can't fly because of the weather? Using our main um, bread and butter business, which is flying to 
to Milford Sound. It's yep. on the west coast. Queenstown's located in the interior of the South Island. So we have a, a big mountain chain that's between us, only 60 nautical miles between Queenstown and Milford Sound, but mountains that are eight or 9,000 feet high in the middle. That means that 200 to 220 days a year are days that we can't fly to Milford Sound. And yet it's our major source of business. So if, wow. it's a pretty hard business model to work with. And uh, in the summertime, we have great hours of sunlight down here because of daylight saving, also because of our low uh, latitude. Yep. And in the winter, of course, the opposite applies. We have very short hours of daylight. So that shortens our opportunity to go flying down to limit it to maybe two flights a day. Where in the summertime, we'd be doing five flights a day. So tell me about the actual the mountain flying courses that you guys run there. Okay, that's based around a 50-hour module. If you arrived in Queenstown and said, look, I'm just going to learn to fly here. From the moment you take off and go flying, you're going to be mountain flying. So you kind of learn that bit goes with the program. So by the time you've got through your 50 hours of your pre-PL, you've probably done 15 or 20 hours of that module of the mountain flying course. And obviously uh, some pilots have actually done their training somewhere else and then they want to come here and fly in Queenstown, they've kind of got to tick that course off. So they might have 250 hours, but they all did it in a, a flat part of the world, comparatively yep. speaking. It could be Australia or it could have even just been over in Christchurch or Auckland. Yep. Before they can get a job here, they've really got to have got through that 50-hour uh, module that we have. And uh, that really is part of that module is going and learning the, the route, the route between here and Milford Sound on every given day. <laughs> and pretty well the employers here or the other companies here that would be employing pilots would require that those pilots at least achieve that before they would be contemplating taking them on. Even if they had two or 3,000 hours flying somewhere else, they would have still required a good percentage if not all of that 50-hour module to have made that part happen. I mean, the module pretty well com comprises of flying in the, in the mountains and all the different things that are associated with flying in the mountains, like you obviously don't have horizon definition like you would do on a looking out to sea and just seeing a nice piece of straight line there that you used as a, as a horizon. We seldom get that. There's obviously the um, crossing all the saddles, the bad weather options, and flying in you know with whiteout scenarios, and then it gets a little bit more complex when you get into things like we do a strip and beach flying as part of that. Couple, yes. couple of beaches, one one a particular big bay out on the west coast where we can go and land on there, take uh, people in there, and that's uh, an amazing experience. Most people don't really think about light landing on a beach and getting out and walking around on the beach. And we've taken people over there to get married, and we've taken them there for all sorts of venues and functions and it's a fantastic part of it and all the strips obviously that are in our area here and there's a probably off the top of my head there's probably 15 or 20 that we would use for various reasons one of the things that um, i mentioned that that module that i'm talking about that's a 50 hour based around a, a, a commercial pilot basically wanting to fly here and, and work and be employed here in queenstown but the one that's probably the more um, obvious one for the private pilot is the uh, terrain and awareness and, and basic mountain flying course that we run. We uh, run one here, which is obviously based in our mountains uh, rather than just in some hills <laughs> around right. uh, you know, other parts of New Zealand. I mean, obviously other parts of the country have to do with what they've got, but what is happening now is quite a few of the uh, aero club or slash uh, flying schools are bringing their students down on a cross-country exercise, generally from places like Ardmore and North Shore and Auckland, uh, but other, other areas are now starting to sign up to it as well. They come down maybe five, six, seven or eight students and 
three aeroplanes, doing the cross-country part on the way down, spend um, a couple of days with us here and do their five-hour module of um, mountain terrain awareness course. And uh, then, of course, then they fly back to where they've come from and complete their cross-country exercises at the same time. We, we look after them and do a mass briefing and the whole bit at our end, and we're all set up to make that, that part all happen. From that, they'll get their um, the minimum of a five hours dual low-flying terrain awareness, and two hours of that's just the low-flying training, and two hours of that, will, at least of that, will be the terrain and weather awareness training. So that's... Um, something else that uh, you know people interested it could be just one person wanting to do it or it could be a group wanting to make up a, a, um, a whole combination and we can look after them here with accommodation transport and all the other issues that they may require so are you the only um, flying school in New Zealand that does the mountain training no it's there's there's a number of them uh, who are uh, checked off to do it because it is part of the PPL syllabus they need to be to complete it but they uh, like there's one's based in Auckland and uh, there'll be someone based in Christchurch as well it's just that they don't have the same uh, obvious terrain that we have that they, they're still doing a type of mountain flying course but we would argue of course that real mountains are only exist in our part of the world <laughs> so right. um, you know they're, they're not probably getting the full uh, well they're getting a a version of it that they can best uh, do with their own terrain, but uh, we've got a in spades here that we can make it, you know, the very obvious one, and they won't do better. So that's why we encourage them. And if they can turn it into a, a cross-country exercise or something else on the same time, then that's, you know, they've, they've completed a couple of things towards their PPL. Tell me a little bit about the sort of hazards of mountain flying. You must have things like the wind shear and, and that sort of thing as well. Yes, yeah, so a combination of things, I guess. Um, Flying in the mountains, the weather's always a factor, especially in this part of the world. Uh, example, um, Milford, uh, the west coast is uh, less than 60 nautical miles away from us here. And yet uh, the rainfall difference between the west coast and here in Queenstown, uh, in the west coast, you'd be experiencing something around about eight metres of rain a year. And here in Queenstown, we're getting about a metre of rain. So you can pretty well figure from that that um, a lot of days on the west coast aren't very good at all. And, and um, just a short distance away, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes flying time away, we might be bathed in beautiful sunlight and uh, not a cloud in the sky. Quite a different setup if you were thinking, oh, mum and dad, I'll just go off for a nice little fly out to the west coast. <laughs> yep. You can find yep. it and get there and suddenly it's all changed. Typically, if you were flying there on a nice day and you were flying over the tops of the mountains, then it's pretty well straightforward. Anyone can manage that. The tricky bit comes when you need to be flying in weather where the tops of the mountains are covered in cloud. So yep. your situational awareness is different. The mountains look a whole lot different when you're flying around at a thousand feet off the ground or something like that. Uh, looking up at the mountains and looking up at the waterfalls and the things that you're probably looking down on on a good day. And the obvious one that I've spoken about before and one that catches most people out is that there's no obvious horizon. So flying in a valley system with a, a saddle at the end of it and thinking about that, that maybe beyond that saddle that you're going to fly over is another valley and beyond that valley is a higher mountain. So when you're looking at it, you get that whiteout effect. You can't see the saddle for the because it's transposed against the mountain behind it, especially if it's all covered in snow. So uh, you haven't got any visual cues to tell you, if you like, which way up is. And if you had to make a turn, decided that you couldn't enter that valley or you couldn't complete that exercise by flying over that saddle at the end of it, then you need to be able to make that turn. And it might be quite a steep turn if it's a very narrow valley. 
So you need to uh, various things going on in the cockpit that are telling you that you're making a nice balanced turn and to get back out of that valley because you might have the feeling your body's telling you that, oh no, I'm doing a steep turn here and I'm diving when in actual fact you're climbing, you know, all the, all the usual things. So yeah, it's sort of yeah. you're, you're popping your head down inside the cockpit and looking inside to make sure that everything's in balance and I'm not gaining or losing height. And, and those are probably think times when you don't want to be looking down inside the cockpit because of what's going on outside. But the, but the weather is probably the biggest and trickiest part about flying in the mountains. The, the mountains are always there and they're in the same place all the time. So if you know that part of it, then you know how to deal with the crossing the saddles and uh, making the best of the conditions on the day. That's probably the base, the basic nuts and bolts of it. It's a beautiful and, and, and awesome exercise to do. And it's a great thing, I think, that uh, CAA have now implemented that into the PPL program. I and mean, we see it as obvious in our part of the world, but other people would go, oh, I don't know if I really want to do that. But everyone that does it just comes away going, wow, I just feel so much better about my flying, being able to do that part. But do you hmm. have to carry any sort of extra survival kit in your aircraft just in case? We're not required to, although we choose to, and it makes yep. sense to do that. So we carry our normal first aid kits, but we have a, we've made our own survival kits uh, based on what we think you need to go and survive in the mountains. Fortunately, now with the spider tracks and track plus and all those other monitoring systems plus the elts and that you'd like to think that your chances of having to survive in the mountains for a fair few days before you're rescued are pretty unlikely so you know taking um 25 meals and all those sort of things probably not what you need so much but the, the key things for the survival kits generally are um things that obviously to keep you warm and uh, prevent exposure and and to um assist on top of the normal first aid kit to keep you um, that critical first few hours of looking after you um, but we, we choose to carry survival kits in all our aircraft no matter what just for that reason let's mm. just turn to the tourism flying side mm. air wakatipu mm. I, I had a look at your website mm. people can look at your website it's a fantastic website mm. you've yeah. got such such amazing photos on there um, and there's all different packages that people can go for yeah, let's just talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, as I've mentioned, the I guess the bread and butter part of that and m what most people do when they come here from all parts of the world is they want to go to Milford Sound. It is one of the iconic attractions of the world, rated in the top three in uh, uh, some of the uh, big travel mags as yep. one of those must-do things. You've got the option of going to Milford Sound are two. One, you can get in a, a bus or a car and drive there. It's around five hours to get there. It, if you fly there, it takes you 40 minutes. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> And people uh, obviously sign up and like to go for the flight. They might not necessarily think that flying in a little aeroplane is initially what they would uh, prefer to do. Once they've come back from that, you know, the, the response we get from that flight is just just amazing. You know, it's just one of those. Um, I'm so glad I've done it type of things and uh, maybe I was a little nervous to start with but I thought it was just fantastic and obviously we only go in days when the weather is good enough to be able to do it although some of those days are probably not as good as others so bread, bread and butter is going to Milford Sound flying there we've got cruise boats that are operating there that we link with so we put the people on the cruise boat and then we wait around generally uh, for the hour and a half or two hours while they're out on the water and then uh, pick them back up from the terminal and fly them back to Queenstown. So that takes, from where to go, around four hours. 
but the other options that we put with that is maybe going uh, a, a lot of people coming from parts of the world where they don't see mountains and glaciers their big thing is to they want to see a whole lot of glaciers as many as good as many as they can so we take a little detour off our normal flight to Milford we go up to Mount Aspiring which is not that far away from us um, and that's 10,000 feet high with some spectacular glaciers on all sides of it and we can they can go and do a, a, a bit of a fly around Mount Aspiring before we make our flight back down to Milford to go and catch the boat that's a little extra added onto it and then an hour away from us is Mount Cook you can fly to Mount Cook and fly around Mount Cook and of course on the side of Mount Cook is the Fox and the Franz Joseph Glaciers we'll take passengers from Queenstown here take them up to Fox Glacier or Franz Joseph Glacier and they might want to link up typically with uh, catching up with a helicopter which we arrange and go up and do a glacier landing on the helicopter or one of the other popular ones is what they call a, a heli hike where they have a four hour hike up on the glacier uh, taken up by helicopter and uh, we'll take people up there for that and wait around for them obviously and bring them back again so there's a number of packages we've got that can work out of queenstown it's a very obvious tourist town and uh, people arriving here on mass all year round and they all want to go and do something and it's not always bungee jumping or going down the shot over jet river uh, riverboat so what sort of numbers of tourists do you get through say in a year in, in Queenstown, yeah, they, they, the numbers that they bandy around here are something like we have around 30,000 visitors on any one week. So we have a population around here of around fifteen or 16,000 people uh, in the in the greater Queenstown Basin. Um, so double that population is here on any one day as visitors. And I know that number moves up and down a little bit. We have a, a, a winter destination thing and people in New Zealand and Australia think a lot of Queenstown is a place to go and go skiing. But people in the Northern Hemisphere come here in the summer and our summer to leave their winter. And we have by far bigger tourist numbers over the uh, summer period than we do over the winter period. At the moment, it's obviously alpine area. It's it's snowing. It's um, you know fantastic for skiing. And our big population that are here at the moment will be Australians. Around seventy five percent of the people on the mountains today will be from Australia, flying in direct from Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. But the northern hemisphere, and in the summertime, we'll have far more people here. So that's our busy season. That. Christmas, New Year, Chinese New Year, that's become quite big now. There's a lot more uh, travellers from that part of the world, and Chinese New Year is a big time off for them. So we have a big spike there in um, uh, early February, I think that date is, when we have a lot of uh, Asian visitors. So there's two worlds going on, but there's always uh, a mass of people coming and going from Queenstown on any day. And that's why that we mentioned earlier, the airport has become such a significant part of the uh, tourist program around here. Do you get to do any GPS precision approaches like the 737s or A320s? No, not a thing. Um, it, one thing we lack and uh, we, we can't even cover at all is any instrument uh, flying in this part of the world. You may or may not be familiar with the RNP procedures that the uh, Jetstar and Air New Zealand now have on board. That's a, a GPS-based approach, approach system that allows them into here in some really adverse weather, but we don't have anything outside of that available. So in other words, that's all inside the cockpit stuff based inside the aeroplane, no ILS and uh, stuff like that based here in Queenstown. If you're looking for an instrument rating, this isn't the place to do it. <laughs> but having said that, having said that, Alexandra is only 20 minutes flight away from here and they have an NDB and all that there. So you could go over there and do your practices and bits and pieces. But most of the people that come here don't come for that. That's not what Queenstown is the 
attraction for, I guess. And uh, foreign license holders mm-hmm. who want, want to come and do some mountain flying, uh, they can do that with you, can't they? Yes, they can. We have various agreements with various other countries. I mean, when we, I mean, New Zealand civil aviation uh, uh, licensing, etc. I mean, Australia is a pretty well a given. There's just a few ticks in the boxes. There's uh, the the um, some of the Asian-based uh, license holders, and they all have sort of certain requirements. The best thing for them to do is to go onto the CAA website and look at the uh, foreign pilot and requirements as to what they want to do. But most people are here visiting, so what we do here is we call it a non-member flight, and typically we might have anyone from a 747 captain down to somebody who's done five hours flying back in their home homeland and uh, is mad keen about aviation. We we get them to fly. We just one of our instructors just goes with them and we'll take them to wherever they they want to yeah, where, where they are capable of going obviously and where they're dependent but they could just as simply uh, come here if they had some experience and say look I want to hire an uh, airplane on a, a non-member flight and they could go to Milford Sound for example via yep. all those places that I talked about take um, mum and uh, you know the kids with them as well and kind of make that experience their own and do some flying and log it and do all the, the, those bits as well and that's a very popular option most of that occurs in the summertime because obviously the daylight hours are long and the um, and the conditions are probably more favorable but it's available anytime anybody wanted to do and it's probably the simplest and easiest way they don't have to have a license they don't even have to show us a license we're just taking them along as a dual instruction type of exercise but um, you might get someone here who's done yeah as i said has done lots and lots of time flying so they're going to be able to fly and manage the plane just well it's just pointing them in the right direction and getting the right procedures for them and that's that's a very popular way of getting around if they want to come here and do the uh, spend a bit more time here and maybe do the whole 50-hour mountain flying course, then it's in their interest to change their license over and get all the requirements to fly here in New Zealand uh, done. Depending, as I mentioned earlier, where they came from in the world, then their requirements are different. So that uh, on the CAA website is actually probably the simplest way to answer the question, you know, because yep. it'll be different yep. for everybody. You know, if anybody wants to get into flying commercially with you guys, mm-hmm. you know, as a job, is it easy for people to come and do your full commercial course and then move into work with you? Yes, yeah. I, I think the, the, the general um, the general comment there is if you're prepared to go uh, come here with a commercial pilot's license or come here and do your commercial pilot's license even better and um, complete that 50 hour requirement which if you were doing a commercial pilot's license here on the field you would have covered off just in the normal training but if you came from somewhere else and required uh, to work here then you would have to complete that 50 hour course and as I mentioned earlier it's it's not exactly 50 hours it might be that some people have got some time towards it or they're adapting better than others so it's a it's a flexible time of thing but it's kind of somewhere in that ballpark figure the the general result from that is that you'd have a job available to you if you wanted to take the time to do that. And it might be that you might only be getting a little bit of work to start with. And like all things, you kind of, you know, we, we would, uh, the Airwalk Tipu side of it would probably say like, well, you're, you know, you've done the course, you've completed it and you've, uh, you, you're a good pilot and we're happy with your, what you're doing. We'll take yep. you online and um, use you as one of our pilots. And it might be, like I said, in a, in a, in a slightly part-time way. But after some um, time here on the field, you'll find that you know people come and people go. Uh, some of the uh, other pilots are moving on into the airline business at the moment. And uh, airline recruiting's up there at the moment. Yep. So we've lost quite a few off the field into the airline industry. So they need to be replaced. So it's kind of one of those, if you want to do it, you might need to have a, another job 
job um, <laughs> uh, part-time here in Queenstown, and they're easy to get. There's plenty of jobs in Queenstown because of the uh, high tourist business here. You know, hotels, motels, uh, all the other tourist activities all require staff, and uh, there's some of them quite transient. You know, the wintertime, there's a whole lot of ski bums here, and in the summertime, there's a whole lot of other people here, you know, so it comes and goes. I wouldn't say it's a definite given, but you could say you're 90% chance that you would have a job at the end of completing the course if you wanted to hang in there. So if anybody wants to look uh, further into um, either Wakatipu mm. Club or, or Air Wakatipu, mm. um, tell us about your websites. Uh, yes, um, going on to uh, airwakatipu.com or the Aero Club, wakatipuaeroclub.com are the two sites that we run. If you're obviously looking at your training side of things and bits and pieces there, then the Aero Club's the place to go. If you're looking at it from a commercial uh, point of view and you want to partake of some of the activities, have a look at the Air Wakatipu site. The um, training side, uh, our CFI here is uh, Kerry Connor, uh, and she's recently joined us. She's a fantastic pilot. She's got seven and a half thousand hours to, uh, and uh, all sorts of things from uh, World War One uh, Fokker triplanes and sop with camels and stuff like that. Uh, we have a Piper Pacer here, which she owns, which is a tail uh, dragger version of that. So we do tail dragger training with that. But uh, she has lots and lots of requirements from uh, lots and lots of ratings on all sorts of aircraft. Like I said, uh, World War Two aircraft, like Harvards, and all the way down to all our normal things as you would expect. All the sets and bits and pieces so she's a terrific person to have on our team and she's um, a great source of information for anyone if they were looking at their learning to fly or if they've got license requirements or um, hey I've got this and I've done this but I need to do that how do I do it and she's the one that's made all the syllabuses and the modules that we are talking about with the mountain terrain and anything from ab initio upwards so contact Kerry through our uh, email and uh, that's frontdesk at wakatipuaeroclub.com and uh, she can um, answer the questions there for that as well or just give us a call and on our, our landline numbers here and, and or our free phone number. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you very much, Peter. That's been really interesting. Awesome, Dave, and uh, all the best, and uh, thanks for inviting me on. It's been great. No problem. Thank no you. Problem. Cheers. Come on. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, I'm here with a gentleman by the name of Paul Strike. Uh, he's from Caribou Cargo. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you with us. Now, uh, I was invited along to an antique day, the Caboolture Aerodrome. So that's where I've been. I've been up for a fly in an Antonov, and, uh, and now I have the opportunity to, to have a chat with Paul about his operation and, uh, and some of the goals and aspirations that they have regarding the Caribou and where they would like to see it still alive in our airspace in Australia. So, Paul, if you want to give us a bit of an intro and maybe a history lesson in, of yourself in aviation, um, that would be uh, great. And then maybe we'll move into to where you are now and, and what you're aiming to do with the Caribou in particular. Sure. Well, uh, going back to the, the grassroots, uh, started off as an air cadet in Townsville. Uh, got my taste of aviation from a very young age. Joined the Defence Force, did 16 years in the RAF. Uh, as a uh, then electrical fitter, but then the trades amalgamated, so I became avionics. My first posting was 1AD GEMS, Ground Equipment Maintenance Section, at RAF Base Laverton. Being a young fellow, wanting a bit of excitement, I joined the RAF Laverton Gliding Club and uh, quickly became hooked in all things aviation. 
Um, went on to get a air experience instructor's rating, did some competition flying with uh, between the Army, Navy and Air Force. So many Christmas holidays spent flying gliders around outback New South Wales, mm-hmm. Forbes, Narromine, places like that. Good fun. I imagine that there would have been a fair bit of rivalry. Air Force obviously would have had to have known how to fly gliders better. Well, it didn't always turn out that way and there was probably a a lot more um, talking about it at the bar at night. Yeah, right. Uh, the debrief. The, yeah, the debrief. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we're all out there to fly safe aeroplanes and have a good time, mm-hmm. which we did. And um, it was very challenging um, doing, you know, five, six hundred kilometres in a glider is uh, a lot more challenging than doing five or six hundred kilometres in GA aeroplane. But... It's a lot more time-consuming to do the gliding yeah. because uh, there are a lot more people required to get one person flying than there is for GA, so there's always a trade-off. So then, um, of course, the obligatory marriage and children come along, which uh, caused a, a delay in proceedings. And uh, I did do some flying at Point Cook and, and got my GFPT, and then the kids come along and the marriage and, and things slowed down. I got... Uh, Posted the 482 Squadron, worked on F-111s, mm-hmm. uh, support uh, for them, and then went to 38 Squadron at Richmond in my first tour with Caribous, and uh, helped the squadron move up to Amberley, and basically was involved with the, the whole refit of the old 12 Squadron facilities that where the Chinooks were. Yeah. And uh, that was quite challenging and rewarding because we were just rebuilding a whole new caribou base um, from scratch. So um, I did a little stint with um, 23 Squadron on the restoration of the two Boston bombers. Mm-hmm. That was really... It was, a, it was a challenging and frustrating period trying to restore aeroplanes with no data, limited resources... Um, but very rewarding when the pilot of the American aircraft came out. And um, I was very fortunate to be up on the wing to help him up and show him into the cockpit. Man, he, he sort of looked in the cockpit and looked at me and said, it's just like I left it 50 years ago. And as he climbed into the cockpit, you could see that he wasn't 65 years old. He was 19 years old again in New Guinea flying the aeroplane, you know. It was just really rewarding. A magical moment. Absolutely. And then so I, and then I went back to 38 Squadron for another tour on Caribous, and uh, I uh, ended up leaving the Air Force and going working in the Middle East for a couple of years, working on um, computer systems for maintenance tracking and databases for equipment and aircraft maintenance. I went over to Canada after my contract in the Middle East and my first job in Canada was with Buffalo Joe McBride. Oh really? I've from just watched the, Ice Pilots. Yeah I've just watched the first two series. So you good worked for Joe. Buffalo Joe. Oh good old Joe. Yes. I did three whole months. Like I love the old aeroplanes but I'm just afraid that I really didn't fit into the style but just the way that things happened in Buffalo Airways is not what I wanted to do. So we were up in Yellowknife. I lived there for four years. Got a job with Short Skyvans. Operation moved to Yellowknife and they needed to set up their operation there. I was getting paid $15 an hour and 
and I decided to get my Canadian AME license. I went through the process of transferring my Canadian AME license to CASA and then subsequent with the job I have in PNG, got a PNG Canadian uh, PNG AME license. My wife uh, is actually a Canadian commercial pilot. That was one of the prerequisites of wife number two. Had to be a pilot. Had to have the aviation bug. That's it. Being a sufferer of uh, aviation-induced divorce syndrome in the first go-round. So we thought about getting an, an aeroplane that we could fly, because we are both into it. So we ended up buying a Skyfox. We moved around a couple of hangars here and eventually secured a hangar that we could use. And uh, when I was up in New Guinea, I, I saw a need for a, an aircraft that could do some heavy lifting into short strips. The Turbo Caribou uh, was um, investigated and, and through a number of avenues we found that they were available. And so we started marketing those because PNG is the Caribou's playground and uh, there's no shortage of qualified people for them, uh, XRAF. And so for the listeners' benefit, the Turbo Caribou's a standard Caribou with PT6 turboprops? That's correct. Uh, the standard uh, um, configuration remains the same. The airframe is not modified uh, apart from what is required to fit the, uh, the PT6 engines. Uh, and obviously the instrumentation needs to be a bit different. Um, so these airframes that were available, extremely low air, airframe time and uh, coupled with the new PT6 engines makes a very good workhorse. Um, price tag is a bit pricey, um, but uh, for the amount of work that it can haul, uh, it would beat anything that's in New Guinea. So we started looking at that. And, there, and around that time, the RAF retired the, uh, the Caribous, and we put a bid on um, one of the Caribous, uh, not to convert it, but purely to retain the historical value of the machine. Um, it was in service for 45 years, and it did a lot for Australia, and we felt that it's a unique machine that needs to be protected and... and, and and maintain for future generations. Um, we weren't successful for the one aircraft that we bid for, um, but we uh, continue our support by um, assisting HARS wherever possible. Uh, we recently went to Canada for a couple of other projects, and while we were there, we, uh, in our relationship with Viking Aero, um, we acquired a full set of manuals for the Caribou and donated them to Haas. We've um, supplied numerous components that are required to keep the aircraft in the air. Um, on top of that, we also provide technical support, either if we have a team member that's down in Haas to assist with maintenance or, or just experience on the aircraft type. Um, we're fully committed to the Haas initiative and as such we will do whatever is required to ensure the longevity and the, and the future of the XRAF aircraft including the ones that still remain at Oki. Um, so part of that initiative is uh, our company started up the Peekaboo program which is the um, an assistance program for Haas. It's not a Haas program, it is our company 
looking to utilise the Haas caribou to take it to different locations in Australia so that people can see, hear, smell and, and touch the aeroplane, get it out of the museum environment, get it out of... Uh, like Haas flies the aircraft regularly, but it's only locally around Albion Park near Wollongong because it, it's quite an expensive aircraft to operate. Our company's taken it upon itself with the approval of Haas to fundraise on their behalf with the view to utilising the Haas aircraft for events in different places. So, for example, this antique day that you came to visit today, we were hoping to have the aircraft here. Unfortunately, uh, the Caribou had an uh, engine problem uh, a number of weeks ago and had a requirement for an engine change, so it, it wasn't available. But on our website, caribucargo.com.au, we have a special page for the Peekaboo program where people can make a donation. So if, if we identify a, an event uh, which would be suitable for the Caribou to attend, um, then we would utilise those funds to move the aircraft from Wollongong to wherever. And I could imagine that there'd also be um, potentially down the line an opportunity for people to, to even fly in the Caribou for old time's sake or, or just to experience that twin radial yeah. thump. Yeah, thump is the word. The um, opportunities to fly as a passenger in the Caribou at this point in time are not readily available due to regulatory requirements but it is a view of Haas to have that like going to be able to fly in their Connie or mm -hmm. on the on the deck um, that is a view down the line however at this point in time only Haas members are allowed to fly in the Caribou um, so if people do have a desire to want to fly in the aircraft, I suggest you join Haas. Uh, you don't have to be at Wollongong. I'm a member of Haas, but I live in Queensland. Mm -hmm. um, if everybody joins, then Haas has more resources available to fly the aircraft to get it to places like Avalon or Tamora or Caboolture or Bundaberg Air Show mm -hmm. or wherever. Um, you know, without the bucks, there's no Buck Rogers. Haas is a volunteer organisation and, and um, there are a lot of people down there living in the Sydney area that are, are blessed with the opportunity to just jump in their car and zip down and spend a day or a weekend helping out. Um, so um, people who are not able to go down for a short period um, the way that they can assist is become a financial member of Haas, and 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 it's it's less than a hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. It's fully tax deductible, and um, a, an increase in in financial membership will will give them more tools to to be able to do what they do, which is keep these old aircraft in the air. From what I understand, it was going to cost twenty thousand dollars to get the Caribou up here to Caboolture. Yeah, around about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, and and um, round about twelve thousand dollars of that was fuel. Just yeah. so we're not 
It's not a commercial operation. It's purely a cost recovery yeah. exercise. That's right. And from what you were saying, there was going to be then a donation made to Haas for ongoing. Absolutely. Event. So, however, having said that, um, nothing succeeds like success. And on the Peekaboo website, this antique day was uh, at Caboolture was a trial to see what the support was out there. Um, Unfortunately, there wasn't a large amount of support. Um, when our goal is not just to fly it to Caboolture, our goal is to uh, take the caribou to places where it lived and worked. Mm. So, you know, Perth, there was Detachment D for 38 Squadron. It was in Darwin for Search and Rescue. It was in Townsville. It was at Amberley. It was all over Australia doing flood relief and emergency services work and I'm sure that if we can start people understanding that there is a repository for people to make a donation where the aircraft will eventually get to those places mm -hmm. but if we don't get the support it's like HARS if they didn't have all those people to go down there and donate their time. Uh, there's one particular gentleman that I work closely with down there, Bob St. John. He is down, he basically working seven days a week for Haas. If he's not at the museum, he's doing paperwork or sourcing parts or doing this and doing that. It's the dedication of those people that will allow the aircraft to go to Avalon hmm. so that you can stand at the crowd line and you can hear it and see the white smoke puff out of the engines and you can stand behind it and get covered in little sprays of engine oil and, <laughs> and all that stuff. But without the benefit of those people and the people who make the financial commitment, the aeroplanes are going to sit in a shed covered in bird poop mm. and they're never going to move because there's no money to move Hmm. And it's un it's unfortunate, and and it is tight. Everywhere is tight out there, and everybody's trying to make every dollar go further. But Australia doesn't have the volume of people like North America. But one thing that my wife and I do miss is going to an air show. There's more air shows in one summer season in North America than there is in Australia in three years. Hmm. And every time there's an air show on, it's like, oh wow, we've got to go, we've got to go because they don't come around that often. Mm. And we need to savour those because another thing that's been missing with the change in aviation with 9-11, can't go to the cockpit anymore, and the, the mystery and the, and the thrill of aviation, the, the young kids aren't getting it. Yeah. Um, yep. Councils are removing, oh, it's a security hazard to have those car parks near the airport where you can sit with a hamburger and spend your lunchtime watching the planes take off. You know, all of these things, the mystery and the... And the mystique. The mystique, even. yeah, absolutely, of flight is is just... The kids are not getting it. You know? I took my youngest daughter up for a fly a couple of weeks ago. It was her first flight, mm. and um, she'd been at me to take her for a fly. And I've also got a six-year-old son, and mm. I said to him, I said to my 12-year-old daughter, you're coming to sit in the back with her, you know, mm. just keep her comforted in case she stresses I said to my six year old son do you want to come no nah. 
I was like, how can you not want to come flying? I just I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I've got yeah. a bit of work with him. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the uh, ultralight school that I had, my son, he was four years old, and it was his job to put the chocks in the plane when it stopped. Yeah, you're right. Four years old, and I remember, as clear as sitting here, and he's looking at me now, and he probably won't remember this, but somebody told me later I parked the plane and I just remember him standing there four years old with these wheel chocks one hooked under each arm just this little kid and he would not come to the plane until I turned around and gave him the thumbs up once the engine shut down he was told you can't come near the plane until the engine stopped and you don't come and put the chocks in until I give you the thumbs up but that was his job Mm. when he was four years old and somebody told me later, we were having a, a barbecue, and somebody come and said, you know, the funniest thing happened when you were taxiing in today. Your son picked up the chocks, and he was standing there like he was King Almighty. And before you even got near the hangar, he turned around to everybody and said, now nobody's allowed to go anywhere near the aeroplane until the engine has stopped and my dad gives the thumbs up. And he was deadly serious. And then he was just standing there like this. And I thought that, you know, that was just awesome. And now he's a he's an airhead. He's just an aeroplane. Oh, he'll, he'll make a good loady then in the RAF. That's right. Knows how to run by regulation. That's right. Yeah. So, but, but we're missing that. You know, the kids aren't totally. getting out there. And, and um, you know, if we don't have these old aeroplanes around, then there's going to be nothing to see. The other point, too, is that, like you alluded to before, it's a part of our aviation history in Australia. Mm. Um, I was recently in Toowoomba for the 100th anniversary of the, the airfield in Toowoomba. Mm. And, and that was a, to be honest, it was a pretty small turnout for what it was. Um, mm. 45 years of the Caribou, the H-Series Herc's about to be retired. Yeah. You know, the F-111's been retired, yep. the Mirages were retired, what, nearly 20 years ago, yep. over 20 years ago. The Grumman Trackers... The Skyhawks. You're right. If it doesn't get funded, then it'll just dwindle into nothing. And I look at the Iroquois, now the Blackhawk and the Caribou have all been... They're all linked with civilian population in Mm. this country because Mm -hmm. of the amount of relief work that's gone on over the last, well, 30, 40 years. And um, there's a lot of people owe their livelihood and their lives to, to these... Uh, aircraft that we've been fortunate to have. You know, if we want the aircraft to be out there and to remember the caribou, uh, the XRAF caribous are, are not commercially viable. They deserve to be pampered and taken to air shows so that people can dotter over them and, and enjoy them. That's what they deserve to be done. Because they're, they're really heroes. The machines are heroes and... and as you said, a lot of people owe their lives to the machine. So if, if people want to make a donation to the Peekaboo there, uh, it, it will fly to other places. And, and we want to give people the opportunity. If, if people want the caribou to come, then we're happy to take it. We can't do it for free. So there's a link off your website, which is at all the W's dot caribucargo.com.au is that right? That's correct and, yeah. and there's a on the menu there's a link for Peekaboo mm-hmm. um, 
We also have a radial aircraft page which is dedicated purely to uh, every tail number of caribou that was in the Air Force and I invite people if they've got stories or photos or whatever to send them to us and we'll put them on the applicable aircraft. Like if there was a farmer who said all my cattle were saved in the floods of 74 or whatever because caribou 210 came out and the crews flew around for four days dropping hay bales out the back so Mike and you got photos of it please send it we'll put it on the website fantastic and um and I noticed in your hang you've also got a, a decathlon so an opportunity become available to buy a banner towing operation uh that was based here in Caboolture and uh both my wife and I are avid tail wheel pilots and um and we thought that that would just be a little bit of fun, um, allow my wife to transfer her license and utilise it. Mm-hmm. Um, also have a really cool aeroplane, like a decathlon, to um, go. Make a little bit of money to pay for the hangar and, and keep it all going and then have something to go outside, get upside down and play around in. turn yourself inside out with. Nice. All right, so we can find you, obviously, your website mentioned before. Uh, there's also a Facebook page. Yep, there's a DHC4 Caribou Facebook page. I'd also just like to suggest um, uh, to any of our listeners that know people that have worked on the Caribou, I'd definitely be recommending they check out the Pickaboo website uh, because they may want to be involved or they may want to get in touch with Haas or however they can to be able to relive um, what was once a part of their life also. Absolutely, and, and that's what it's about. Uh, my son Blake, he, he wants to join the Air Force as a loadmaster and he wants to go on the Spartan, but he would have loved to have been in the Caribou. Now, he's of the, the, the next generation, and, and uh, I think the only reason that he's got his attachment to the Caribou is because of what I've lived and, and passed on to him. And you know we need we need people with that passion who have that that drive inside of them to to come out and partake of their experience and knowledge, and so that we can make the younger generation remember what the aeroplane did, not just on some footage on yeah, TV on, or on YouTube. That's it. That's exactly right. All right, Paul. Well, thank you very much, and um, we'll obviously chat in the future. Thank you. Hey, pass me your desktop flight planner. Hey! Ah, you won't be needing that anymore. Not when you have this. Ooh, iPad. Uh-huh, with Avplan. Avplan is a complete flight planner and EFB tool for iPad or iPhone. You can use it for VFR and IFR, and it has NAPES integration for weather and NOTAMs and unique weather overlays on your maps. Produce fast, professional flight plans and have unparalleled situational awareness during flight with Avplan from Avsoft. You can download it now from iTunes or visit avsoft.com.au. Avplan. More in your EFB. Game challenge begins. Launch. Circular orbit. Rapid rendezvous. Intercept and dock with International Space Station. All engine running. Liftoff. Tower Push the ISS to higher orbit. 
Must you leave VA astronauts? Avoid space debris. Destroy debris with missiles. Protect the ISS. For as long as possible. Deorbit. Land. Survive. All in a day's work. We had a pretty large bank. Okay, we have a problem here. Leo, low Earth orbit. A game from skyrocketcafe.com. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, airshow reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant, and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under show. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Well, there we go. And uh, thanks to Damien for grabbing that interview. Now, I, uh, you know, I should offer my apologies to Damien because he actually recorded that interview several months back. And I keep putting him in. Damien, I've got to put back one more episode, one more episode. So I'm glad we finally got it in for this year. And I'll tell you what, Grant, the Caribou, an iconic aircraft in Australian skies. I'm really glad to see that they're still still around flying, even though they're not flying in military service anymore. And uh, as for, uh, you know, turbine converted ones, well, I'd love to see one of those in real life. Oh, yeah, mate. That sounds fantastic. Uh, it does make it uh, rather similar to the Buffalo, which uh, was the, the DHC-5, a turbine variant of the Caribou, although I believe a little larger and a little bit more uh, lifting capacity. But uh, that would be amazing, just like the Basler conversions of the DC-3 with the turbines on them. Definitely um, you know, giving new life to an old bird. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I know with interest, Grant, that uh, Haas is uh, flying their Caribous around the skies, uh, around uh, the Wollongong sort of area. So it's, it's good to see that they're still around flying and I reckon they'll be in the skies for many, many years to come, which is which is a great thing. And they're not exactly the fastest aircraft around, but boy, I tell you <laughs> what, some of that, uh, the short field stuff they do is just amazing. Absolutely. It's a very impressive aircraft and it's wonderful that we've still got them being kept in the sky by Haas. Now, we've got a lot to get through as we wrap up uh, the year. As, as always, we want to do uh, you know our usual uh, thanking of everybody who's uh, helped and supported us over the years. But uh, before we do that, we need to thank the postman, Grant. I'm just going to bring him in now as we uh, talk about a couple of things. Uh, yes. It was a midnight postie. Yes, the 10.34 postie, in fact. Now, uh, <laughs> contact at plainecrazydownunder.com. I tell you what, we've had uh, lots of uh, emails coming in. And uh, just on a personal note, Grant, I'd like to thank so many people for writing in and uh, wishing me well for my pending surgery that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And I really do appreciate that. I've had quite a few emails, Grant, and uh, quite a few messages on the Facebook page. So uh, for all of you uh, who's keeping me in, in your thoughts, I really do appreciate that. I'm not looking forward to a knee reconstruction, but I am looking forward to my knee working again. <laughs> <laughs> at some point. Well, you know, it's a, it's a handy thing to have an operating knee. Yes, well, at the moment it operates in all sorts of strange directions, Grant, so <laughs> it's not really good. 
Okay, now, of course, so there's plenty of ways you can contact us. You can send us an email, but you can also send us a voicemail. And somebody who does that from time to time is our good friend over there in Canada, Ian Kershaw. He sent this one in to us. Hi, Stephen Grant. It's Ian Kershaw from Calgary. Uh, just following up, um, Owen Zupp and his recent book, um, His 50 Tales. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was the best um, 4 99 that I have spent for a long time. For the price of a large coffee at Starbucks, um, I had some amazing insights into what an interesting individual he is. His outlook on flying is just really special. The uh, individual articles were a, a beautiful mix of content um, and brought, uh, brought, for someone who's ground-based on the wrong side of the fence, um, it really brought uh, to me um, the spirit and the passion for flying that he and no doubt many others share, but few, I think, with such eloquence. And then towards the end, he mentioned another book, Down to Earth, and his interview with um, a World War II um, pilot whose name eludes me right now. I'm sitting in, a, in the lobby of a, an office building waiting for a meeting. I don't have all my information. But I did spring um, my $20 for uh, a purchase of that book. And again, um, Owen's writing style and the way he so sensitively puts things together um, and shares uh, the spirit of flying, and in this case, the individuals, and again, his name is not with me, sorry, um, experiences, was pure magic. My first thought was, gee, 190 pages for $21, but of course, uh, sometimes great things come in small packages, and this was one of them. My only regret is that I read it straight away. Um, next week, I'm, I've got a 10-hour flight from Vancouver to Manchester in the UK, um, and I'm going to need a good read. I should have saved that book for the flight because it really was special. Nonetheless, I'm sure I'll enjoy it the second time round. Um, please pass on my good wishes to Owen. I know you keep in touch with him. I do hope he's able to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard um, again. And if he does, I certainly will be signing up for a copy. Appreciate all your efforts. Uh, enjoy the show as always. And I look forward to... Uh, storing the next issue so that I can uh, listen to it on my flight in Air Transat's sardine section. Take care, guys. Wishing you all the very best. Ian Kershaw, Calgary. Well, thanks very much for sending that in, Ian. And uh, Ian's uh, always uh, sending us in some really great uh, voicemails. He also does that uh, quite regularly to the guys over there at the Airplane Geeks podcast. So it's, it's good to know that, you know, in fact, I've actually uh, heard him uh, sending in, I think, some voicemail to the guys that he extended as well. So good to know that, uh, you know, the podcasts that have all been, you know, spawned by the Airplane Geeks podcasts and the mothership itself are being, you know, well <laughs> spread around by our listeners. Indeed, mate, indeed. And uh, something of interest that Ian mentioned there was uh, looking forward to anything else Owen puts out and uh, yeah that's right Owen has put out a new book as some of you may already be aware Owen's Up's latest book Solo Flight is out and available on Kindle and this book covers his uh, flight solo around Australia raising uh, funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service uh, many of you who've been listening to us for a long time would uh, remember that we had various interviews with Owen covering the preparations and the actual event and also the wrap up at the end so uh, it's an amazing uh, adventure that he uh, went through flying a solo around Australia in a Jabiru J230 aircraft. And uh, Owen's graciously given us five copies to give away. Now, that's uh, five electronic copies. It's available on the Kindle. So you can either read it on a Kindle device or use the Kindle software on your iPhone, Android, 
tablet, whatever you're using, even on your PC. So, uh, Steve, we're going to give away five copies, aren't we? We are, and uh, the year is running short, Grant, so we're not going to run uh, anything like uh, a complex competition like we did the last time. We're going to make it uh, simply the first five people to send in an email with Owens up in the uh, subject line. So that's to contact at plaincrazydownunder.com. The first five emails we receive will be sending you off a code uh, that will allow you to download your complimentary copy. We want to thank Owens up. He's been really generous with our listeners this year, and he he really is a passionate writer when it comes to uh, aviation. I mean, he really nailed it there. Uh, He's done a lot of writing. He does a lot of writing for magazines, uh, Australian Aviation most notably, but uh, many other publications around the world, and uh, just a fantastic advocate for uh, aviation in this country and, uh, you know, aviation in general. Definitely, mate, definitely. And and also a really nice guy, a lot of fun to catch up with and chat with. And, uh, yeah, all-round good guy and great articles and uh, books, as you've mentioned. So please do send us that email, first five to come in with Owens up in the title, to contact at playingcrazydownunder.com will get the copy. Now you talk about Owen being a good guy. Well, another another good guy is uh, our regular listener, Evan Shu. And uh, Grant, uh, he recently did some balloon work with you. And uh, well, we mentioned that with our Kathy Mexted episode a few months back. Well, uh, here's his thoughts as he uh, recalled the day. Hey, Playing Crazies. It's Evan Shu here. I um, thought I'd give a little bit of voice feedback as to my experiences the other day, meeting Grant and Kathy and... Um, ballooning in general. So um, here goes. First of all, I'd like to say that um, I confirm that Kathy's recount of events is absolutely correct. How did I go, Kathy? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, anyway. I um, just wanted to say that I, I jumped at the chance to uh, come and see a balloon flight close up. I've seen them from a distance, but the opportunity to get amongst the crew was too good to pass up, especially for a, a fixed-wing pilot like myself. It's a fascinating to see a different kind of flight. I, uh, when I arrived, I couldn't make out anyone's faces in the car park because it was a bit dark, but uh, I recognised Grant's, and actually I recognised Kathy's voice before I <laughs> realised who it was. I um, really enjoyed the fact that Grant was talking us through everything as he went. It was great to see normally jovial Grant was uh, actually very professional in his approach. He uh, also warned us he might get a little snarky, but he never did. Uh, I was amazed by how cold it was, and especially when standing in front of a powerful fan when it's sub-zero outside. Yes, that was uh, pretty darn cold. But it made up for the fact when I saw Grant's face for the first time when he let that first burn go. It's like a kid in a candy store. He was smiling ear to ear. The thing that struck me the most about it was um, when Grant and Kathy took off, It was they, they were still talking to us on the ground for quite a while. Up in the air, they were drifting off up in the air, but still talking to us. So that was, that was unusual for, for me, but cool. They were waving to us. Also, being a ground crew member um, has its own excitement. Um, I got to hang out with Lou and Simon and uh, chat as we sort of made our way um, from one place to another. Um, And then on the second flight, hanging out with Daniel, that was uh, really cool. It kind of has its own uh, little bit of adrenaline rush, um, following the balloons, working out the possible landing sites they might be heading for, working out the roads that we can take and don't get caught up in a dead end road or anything so yes we uh, 
we got out our Google Maps and we were we were going for it. And uh, yeah, working out how we can get there and help out with the uh, the landing and talk to the landowners and stuff. That was that was really good. But a couple of things that I learned: the balloon envelopes are much more complicated than they look from the outside. There's ropes and panels and um, the crown and straps and all kinds of things going on inside. And I, I can only imagine what those specially shaped ones have. I also learned that relationship management is one of the biggest parts of safe ballooning. Relationship with your ground crew, relationship with the, the landowners that you might come into contact with. Um, yeah, it's a big part of it. Oh yeah, and a good hot breakfast. <laughs> That's probably the best part. Anyway, um, thanks to Grant for um, having me along. Thanks to Kathy for chatting to me, and it was lovely to meet you both. And hopefully one day I'll meet uh, Steve. Looking forward to that. And no, 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 I won't. I won't record your. I won't video your uh, landings if I'm there, unless they're um, exciting. Okay, well, thanks for that. And uh, one last thing, uh, congratulations on four years for PCDU. It's been great, and I look forward to much more great content in the future. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Evan, and thanks for taking the time to record that very detailed account. There's a number of points I could make out of that. Let's see. Well, since he sent that in, actually, we have met. <laughs> actually, I met Evan up there at Ozfly, so that was fantastic. Recognising Kathy's voice. You know, Kathy is the most recognisable. She's even more recognisable on this podcast, you know, to our listeners than we are. Grant, what's going on with that? Well, you know, it's that uh, lady's touch, I think. Uh, everyone just uh, likes her a lot more than us, but that's life. Uh, you know, we'd better be careful. One day she might actually wind up making PCDU on her own without us. Hey. Now, there's an idea. We could have a rest. Oh, only if we can take credit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure we can organise something. <laughs> now, Grant, what's this about hot breakfasts? Uh, you know, you, you know, you're quite the continental cook. I've been to your place and, you, well, actually, normally it's Kit that cooks for us and it's, it's some very exotic foods that you guys live on. Yeah, uh, it's nothing to do with me cooking, mate. It's called uh, the post-flight brekkie and uh, usually the pilot buys for his crew. So we had a lot of fun uh, both times we flew. Uh, yeah, Evan got to experience the joys of finding a good cafe and eating a wonderful uh cooked brekkie um, <laughs> yeah there's a reason why many balloon pilots uh, have to work on their weight but uh, yeah look it was great uh, absolutely wonderful he, he showed up and uh, on the first time he was on the ground with our crew uh, keeping up as he mentioned but the second time uh, he showed up and also Daniel showed up both from Twitter and uh, the two of them joined in the chase and they were really good they were as he mentioned uh, landholder relations and so on they got right into it and weren't just tagging along to watch they, they got in and really helped out and uh, it was wonderful uh it was a lot of fun and yes the uh video of the landing um i wish you had got a video of me as the pyromaniac setting the burner off <laughs> um, i think part of the reason for the smile is probably to do with um it was a cold morning and oh look i'm right next to the heat yay <laughs> yeah now uh you know evan is a little bit disingenuous there about not videoing it because he did video it as you mentioned grant in fact uh, i don't know whether we ever released that he actually overdubbed it with some some great uh, boeing cockpit sound effects you know, terrain pull up. We must have released it. I don't know whether we have or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think we put it on the Facebook page. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the one of I got behind the balloon, came through the uh, inversion, and uh, yeah, realised I wasn't going to uh, do a nice landing. I was actually going to go thump on the ground and then bounce back into the air. But yeah, it was all cool and. 
Kathy uh, said, oh, that, that wasn't too bad. And to be honest, I think I've done some landings in a Cessna that felt about the same. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, uh, if you're new to the show and you're wondering what we're talking about, uh, just uh, hit our website, playingcrazydownunder.com, and download episode 110 entitled A Basket Full of Flight, and you'll find out a detailed account of that day. And uh, I'll tell you what, it uh, sounds too cold for me, Grant. I would like to come up, seriously, all jokes aside, I would like to come up uh, balloon flying with you one day. But, geez, mate, can you do it at a time of you know, day when it's not freezing? <laughs> well, you know, I, I will say that we're in summer and uh, if it's not a total fire ban day, I can fly so long as it's not too turbulent and hot. So you never know, mate. Get that knee fixed and uh, once you're able to flex your knee and take some weight on the knee, uh, we might look at putting you in the basket and I'll be sure to bring a big balloon for you. Yeah, that's all right. Then that knee will be fixed well after fire season, mate. I can't be flying a hot air balloon on a TFB because, as you know, I used to be a firefighter and, you know, that might be rather yep. embarrassing. No, well, don't worry. I'm, I'm not allowed to, but I do have a permit that allows me to fly during the fire danger period. Hey, <laughs> there you go. Okay, uh, let's go on to uh, another one of our very regular contributors via email, and that's our good friend Mick. Mick from the Frankston Line Grant. Uh, he's not happy. He's not happy with Virgin Australia. What's he had to say? Well, it's not so much not happy with Virgin Australia. It's just more so much unhappy with their uh, 737-800s that don't have a window seat at 9A. Uh, that's uh, left-hand side of the aircraft, just at the front of the wing. Normally you get a nice view looking down, but uh, I'm not sure if it's in every 737-800, but uh, definitely the one that uh, Mick happened to be on didn't have a window seat at 9A. And, you know, I think I have looked across and seen 9A being without a window and thinking, wow, I'd be a little upset. Well, Mick was. <laughs> yeah, he was. In fact, uh, he's not happy at all. You know, you know, Mick, I have a very simple solution to this problem. A man of your incredible wealth can obviously be sitting in seat 1 Alpha. Just sit in seat 1A. You'll be right. I'm sure there's a window you can look out there. And if not, yeah. you can stretch out in that nice comfortable business class seat. See, I'm always <laughs> having, thinking, Grant. Having been in those business class seats of virgins, yeah, they are quite nice and so is the service. But yeah, I think it was uh, also pretty good of Mick to uh, make a nice comment for you about your knee and uh, how what he thinks you should have done was um, after the injury, crawled onto Metro property and then called them up and gone, workers comp, workers comp. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, they don't go mention that to the HR department at my employer because, you know, <laughs> I do want to go back there one of these days. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> so we'll hold that and maybe even cut the whole bit out. But uh, yeah, no, big thanks to Mick. Uh, he's been uh, sending a lot of really fantastic emails during the course of the year. And I actually got to meet him during the International Fleet Review. Uh, got to be up at uh, Sydney. He graciously offered some space in uh, the apartment he had rented at the Shangri-La Hotel and uh, was able to go up and uh, hang out and watch the, uh, the International Fleet Review on the morning. Okay, Grant, let's move on to the uh, next email we've had. And actually, this one came via a uh, chat box on our uh, Facebook page, Playing Crazy Down Under Podcast. If you're on Facebook and you, you haven't joined the 1,240-odd people that are already following us there, we'd love to have you along. We actually do most of our interaction with our audience, it seems, uh, that way these days. It seems to be a convenient way for most people to do it, and that's fine. Now, uh, one of our young listeners over in the West Indies, in fact, is Rashidi Merrifield, and he uh, actually sent us in a video, Grant. Uh, a young fellow, I'm not sure uh, how old he is, but... Uh, uh, he's an aspiring pilot and he's he's looking at ways to uh, find his way into some pilot training and to, to get into the airlines when he's a bit older. So uh, he sent a video and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, Grant, he did a very good job there of expressing his uh, absolute passion for flying. He certainly did, mate. Uh, there was a bit of a conversation went back and forth between us and uh, he's right into the flying and definitely wants to be an airline pilot. And uh, yeah, in his video, he's uh, looking for some sponsorship to help make it happen. So that's a, that's a pretty 
gutsy maneuver to go out and do that because there's a lot of people looking to fly and there's not a lot of money in the world. But I think if anyone's going to pull this off, it's probably going to be Rashidi. He seems uh, quite determined. Absolutely. So uh, once again, uh, well done, mate. And uh, you know, I, I've you know, I think we've both sort of chipped in and given him some advice. I mean, as Grant said, it is you know a very competitive thing out there to find uh, funding to do it. It's it is an expensive occupation to get trained up into. And I think probably the best thing that uh, Rashidi could do is uh, you know look at getting into some of the uh, cadetship type programs, perhaps if they have them in his part of the world. Maybe I'll look at going to the US when he's a bit older. But, uh, you know, I admire his spirit and uh, he's been getting around the uh, social media world there promoting his video. We wish him all the very best. And Grant, we're going to uh, send Rashidi over one of our plane crazy down under caps. And uh, also uh, he wants a couple of CDs with uh, some of uh, the more recent episodes on it. So we're happy to do that for him. So Rashidi, good luck to you, mate. Please keep in touch. Yeah, let us know when you become an airline pilot and uh, we'll try and uh, come fly with you. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, get on to Owen's Up's words. I'm sure Owen's Up or uh, get on to... Um, um, Carl Valeri's uh, Airline Careers podcast. That'll be a good one to go to while I think about it. Yeah, the Aviation Careers podcast from Carl Valeri. Definitely a good one to uh, to keep up with if you're looking for uh, work in the aviation world. Let's uh, move on now and have a look at some things that are happening uh, in the new year. And Grant uh, Cobden up there in uh, rural uh, Western Victoria, they're having a fly-in. The Cobden uh, Aero Club's having a fly-in in February and uh, the people there wanted to mention it and we're happy to do it. That's right, mate. Uh, they're having a fly-in on the 15th and 16th of February and uh, there's a barbecue lunch and uh, camping under the wing or even accommodation uh, nearby. They uh, have a Facebook page on it and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, it's it's looking like it could be quite a good little fly-in. Yeah, Cobden, it's a lovely part of the world up there. Now, I don't know uh, what sort of state I'm going to be in mobility-wise. So <laughs> it'll be about a month since I had my knee surgery. But uh, if I'm able to move around, we might try try and get up there it's um you know not too far out of melbourne particularly if uh, you know we've got people flying up there maybe they'd like to take me with them but uh, anyway if you'd like more information uh, cobden aero club at gmail.com uh, there's also a couple of phone numbers there for warren or bill we'll put those in the show notes grant we certainly will mate we certainly will uh the link to the facebook page and so on and uh i think uh, that would definitely be a lot of fun to get to and not too hard for anyone in the victoria south australia and uh, southern new south wales to uh, drag themselves over to actually i might get Baz to come and pick me up in that lovely new diamond aircraft he's just bought a share in. You know, Baz, um, you know, you know where my local <laughs> airfield is. Come and pick me up. So, returning to uh, the potential of things that might actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> Back to reality. Okay, Melanie Salisbury from Travel Managers in New Zealand also wrote to us about their Bomber Country Tour of the UK happening in July of 2014. A 19-day escorted tour and uh, Duxford's Flying Legends in Waddington and Riat. I might go on that myself, Grant. Oh, hang on. It's $9,200. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you may have a bit of fun uh, justifying that one to uh, the lady who controls the purse strings. Uh, But yeah, it looks, if I had the money, I'd be all over this. Uh, They're getting some good uh, backstage access, so to speak, to uh, various opportunities in the Duxford area, Waddington, and of course, Riyadh is the Royal International Air Tattoo. Those of you who uh, do listen to the extended podcast from our good friends up in the UK, uh, and you should be listening to it, by the way, you would have been hearing some of their discussions recently about Riyadh, definitely worth seeing. And if you can get over there and get Duxford, Waddington, Riyadh, and possibly Farnborough, oh, mate, that would just be awesome. I, I definitely um, 
<clears throat> be putting that one on my to-do list if I had the spare cash. Absolutely. Now, you know, it is an expensive thing, but getting across to Europe from this part of the world is uh, never a cheap proposition. And I tell you what, for the value you're getting there, it actually it might sound like a lot, but uh, I tell you what, uh, for an escorted tour with all those events, I think that actually represents probably pretty good value. If you'd like more information about that, you can go to aviationtoursnz.com. Okay, let's talk about our good friend and fellow podcaster, Steve Tupper. Stephen Force, is he making that movie? What's going on? Uh, would that be uh, Acro Camp, the one that's just about to come out? Uh, look, he, he, I, I don't think we should really be uh, saying anything about people who haven't released stuff yet. <clears throat> we, we, we sort of went into a bit of a hole for episode releases when we're having fun getting the radio show out. So imagine what it must be like trying to edit a movie. And I, I have enough fun just <laughs> editing my own movies taken while I was flying a balloon, let alone a, a whole amazing documentary movie on Acro Camp. Now, I'll tell you what, uh, Tupper, he does some uh, really amazing things. And I really wish uh, we were even half as good at marketing ourselves as he is at marketing himself because uh, he really you know, knows how to get in there and get the really good gigs. He's been doing some great stuff there with the uh, Tuskegee Airmen and uh, and gliding and all that sort of stuff, getting doing some formation flying in uh, air shows. And I believe he's made a trilogy series on his podcast about that. That's right. He certainly has, mate. Uh, they've come out on his feed. I've had a listen to them. They're a lot of fun. He's put a lot of effort into it. They cover his aspects of being involved in air shows from uh, going out and helping out with the pyros uh, to narrating a display and all the way through to actually being a display pilot. So uh, a lot of fun there and really good episodes, highly recommended. Uh, you've probably already heard about it from the other aviation podcasts you're listening to. And uh, yeah, definitely a lot of fun there. And I'm not just saying this because I'm hoping to get Steve to buy me another bottle of Jeremiah weed, <laughs> which I've just run out of. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to get myself back to the USA because uh, my Jeremiah weed just ran out and I want some more. Let's, uh, let's hope we can get over to the US next year. We'll talk a bit about that in just a few minutes. But uh, Grant, as we wrap up, uh, uh, for uh, 2013. I thought we might just talk about a few of our personal highlights uh, for the podcast. Even though we haven't uh, put out as many episodes, I think we've done 16 or 17 or something this year. Um, there's been a lot of other things going on, but I'll tell you what, I think the, the two highlights for me this year were uh, interacting with Dave Jacker doing his uh, world uh, record uh, flight around Australia. And uh, I was really happy to uh, interact and uh, really proud that we could uh, help Ryan Campbell uh, with his efforts to uh, get around the world and uh, set a world record doing that. Fantastic effort on both parts, mate. Dave Jacker, of course, the uh, first quadriplegic to fly solo around Australia. And Ryan Campbell, the youngest person to fly solo around the world. Fantastic effort from both those gentlemen. And uh, Ryan Campbell made more so. Uh, he uh, had to organise a lot of funding to help out because uh, the aircraft wasn't really supplied at a discount, shall we say. So uh, that Cirrus that he flew around, uh, he did have to uh, foot a lot of the bill for that. So um, fantastic effort, Ryan. And it was just a real honor to have been there a year ago and uh, heard him say, oh, this is what I'd like to do. And then a year later to have been there when he was standing up telling us all, this is what I've just done. Absolutely. Uh, amazing effort. Just an amazing effort. And uh, as for Dave Jacker, you know, uh, I saw a photo of Dave recently trying out a kayak. So oh, really? he's probably going to, you know, circumnavigate the world or something next in a kayak, knowing Dave Jacker. He's, uh, you know, he likes to get out and do that sort of stuff. So. Mate, <laughs> just paddling across a river would be amazing for him. <laughs> and uh, if he's getting into a kayak, that's fantastic. Other highlights for me, I think this year, Grant, obviously the Avalon series and especially my ride in the uh, KC30. Have I mentioned that recently, Grant? Yeah, yes. Yeah, pretty much right up there. I, I actually, you've, you've kind of stopped 
stop mentioning your uh, C130 ride now that uh, Kathy's also had one. But uh, yeah, the <laughs> tanker. Mm. Yes, that was a really great thing. I was really happy with the Avalon series. Uh, you know, one uh, major blooper we made uh, this year was probably made in our first uh, Avalon show, uh, and that was. Uh, we we should offer our apologies once again to the people at Eclipse. Uh, that particular interview um, we only found out later wasn't edited. I actually thought it was, and I just shoved it straight into the uh, main edit. But uh, we didn't realise until later that it wasn't. So, but by then it had already had a couple of thousand downloads, so it was too late. But uh, yeah. it was still a great interview that uh, Stephen Pan did. It's just there was a couple of little bits and pieces that normally I would have removed, and the, you know, the people there at uh, Eclipse were not too happy about that. And we do apologise. So that was uh, a rare editing error on my part. It's entirely my fault and not Stephen Pam's. But uh, aside from that, uh, Avalon uh, this year, uh, a great uh, campaign for us. Uh, we did uh, you know a lot of things, and, and once again, I think we can brag about the idea that you know once again we put out more uh, content than uh, probably anybody else that attended uh, Avalon uh, from a media standpoint, and even their own media people. That's our biggest brag, I think. <laughs> well, we had a uh, daily audio, daily video, uh, churning it out, and uh, lots of good content in there. This is the hardest we've gone for an Avalon. Uh, actually, renting a place nearby, a team of seven on site every day. We we really hit that show pretty hard. Uh, in fact, I'm now scratching my head, thinking, okay, 2015, next Avalon. What are we going to cover that's going to be different? Um, I've got a few ideas and uh, we'll probably start working on that towards the end of 2014 to get ready for the 2015 one, but uh, we'll see what we can do. We haven't put out as many shows as we want to this year. As Grant mentioned, we've been doing radio shows this year and, um, you know, the radio show, we, we started it. It took a lot more time, a lot more time and effort to produce. So we made a series of 10 shows. They went out on King Lake Rangers Radio. We're very appreciative that those guys approached us and uh, offered us airtime and have been uh, continuously enthusiastic about getting more shows and we really do appreciate that. It's also on Seymour FM now in uh, Central Victoria and uh, recently Grant uh, it actually went uh, into uh, Yas FM up there just north of Canberra so it's starting to get around and we're really happy with the way that went. There was a time there where I thought uh, well this is too much effort and we're going to have to give it away but uh, you know now that these series of 10 have been produced um, you know we're finding that uh, other stations are starting to pick it up and uh, that's you know a real big uh, thing for us. I mean it's something that we've aspired to for a long time and uh, it's it's I'm really uh, glad that we're, we're finally getting that aspect of the program out there it allows us to you know get the show a further reach and you know promote aviation to a much wider audience and really when it's all said and done that's the original uh, aim of this show right from the very beginning certainly is mate and it's been good for that we uh, we are going to produce more than just the um, initial 10 we'll when we get a chance we'll get some more of the one hour custom tailored episodes out but uh, the uh, fun part is that for uh, King Lake Radio Steve you're actually going back through some of our older episodes and producing uh, different edits of them that uh, King Lake Radio can play for longer than one hour. They're actually quite happy to have a, a two-hour episode play. Yeah. Uh, so there must be masochists over there. But <laughs> they they have some flexibility and some airtime availability. So uh, they've the the latest ones that are happening now for for uh, King Lake Radio. Uh, anywhere from uh, one to three hours long. Doing it that way actually, uh, you know, makes it a little bit easier to produce. It only takes me about an hour and a half, maybe two hours to remanufacture a, a full podcast, uh, you know, into a, a radio version. So, uh, you know, I'm really glad that it's getting out there and we're getting some really great feedback from people who, you know, hadn't heard the show before, people who are aviators and people who are not. So, uh, you know, that, that's a really good thing. Something else that sort of 
made it a bit hard to uh, get production done was being sent up to Brisbane for a bit more than one day. It's nice to be getting out and doing this corporate work. So there's been some really uh, great highlights this year, getting up there to the Aviation Careers Expo. That was a really good event up there and us doing the MC work. I tell you what, uh, you know, we have great faces for radio, you and I, Grant, don't we? But uh, <laughs> as long as we can hide away in a booth somewhere and provide the voice work, well, I think, uh, you know, I think we're well suited to that. <laughs> yeah, that worked pretty well. That was a lot of fun being up there for the day. And of course, let's not forget Ozfly. Uh, pretty much a whole week spent up in uh, Narromine, New South Wales. Good eight to ten hour drive from from home to there, and and then another one back at the end when you're already tired from uh, producing uh, Ozfly Radio and doing all the uh, air display commentary and so on. And uh, yeah, that that's been pretty good. I also was lucky enough to be up uh, coming back from uh, flying balloons in in the uh, Sydney region, uh, coming back down through Tamora and got to attend Warbirds Down Under 2013. I have a boatload of content there that I will be getting through. Start looking at it the other day and working on uh, packaging all that up for at least one episode, possibly more. It's uh, it's like the content I recorded when I was in Malaysia. That was another highlight going over to Malaysia um, earlier in the year. I've got a lot of content there. I'm just working to get some last minute stuff that we can uh, put in, some, some more um, pieces that we'll, uh, I think, highlight the whole package a bit nicer and then we can release that in the new year, I think. 2014 aviation-wise is, uh, you know, from the Australian uh, perspective, is, is shaping up uh, to be another a big year now. It's not an Avalon year, but it is a Tyab Air Show uh, year for people who are down here in Victoria. And the Tyab people put on a fantastic event down there, and they like to do that very deliberately uh, between the Avalon years. And uh, so, you know, we've done some coverage of their uh, the last event. You know, we'll be getting out there and doing that again in 2014. The Red Bull Air Race returns, which is a fantastic thing. It's not coming to Australia, but uh, of course, uh, Matt, Matt Hall, uh, Australia's Red Bull Air Race pilot, will be back there. They've got seven races, I think, coming up, and uh, we're going to try and get over to the US. They've got two events in the US and one of those is in Las Vegas and uh, you know I've got some leave coming up about that time so we're going to try and uh, get over there and uh, cover that. Uh, really looking forward to seeing the Red Bull Air Race coming back it's it's a fantastic event, I've been to two of them, a bit sad that it's not in Perth uh, people are uh, angry that uh, they didn't give it to Perth but um, I mean the, the truth of the matter is that, that uh, you know the West Australian government didn't bid for it this year so uh, that's just the way it is but hopefully the uh, you know the redesigned uh, Red Bull Air Race concept uh, will come back and prove to be a winner and we'll get more host cities in years to come I really think they're just, you know, putting their toes back in the water, as it were, and uh, seeing uh, what sort of traction it'll get. And I'm, I'm sure that it was very, very popular before. They just had a, a number of uh, issues that just made it impossible for them to go on. And we've talked about that ad infinitum over the years, but uh, really enthusiastic about that coming back. And we'll be talking to Matt Hall about that in the new year, no doubt. Oh, no doubt, mate. No doubt at all. Uh, something else that's uh, coming up in the new year, not too far from the Tyre Bear Show, like about a week away, is the Point Cook Centenary of Australian Military Aviation. Now, every couple of years, the RAAF throws a, uh, a bit of a gathering at Point Cook, and there's uh, generally a bit of flying happening and uh, some air displays and classic aircraft and so on. Well, they're going all out this time. They're making it a two-day event over a weekend. They're going to celebrate the Centenary of Australian Military Aviation. Point Cook, of course, the birthplace for what has now become the RAAF. AF, the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, that was where our air wing first developed and started growing. So it's going to be quite the show from all that we're hearing so far. But pretty much one of everything from the Australian lineup and possibly more coming from other locations. Yes, excellent. And uh, once again, Grant, I hope I'm mobile enough to get out there by then. I'm certainly hoping so, mate. But uh, it sounds like it could be pretty big. Well, Sam, Steve Vischer, I'm sure we can get ATC Ben and uh, many others of our crew. You know, we could drag Ben Jones back over from the West and send him again. I'm I'm sure he'd love to do that. Yeah, oh, mate, he's got enough frequent fly points. He can come on over anyhow. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. He probably earned most of them working for us.
us. <laughs> yeah, well, there's always that. <laughs> and uh, speaking of Jonesy, I think he's uh, aiming to get to Oshkosh this year, and I'm pretty sure Baz is going again to not uh, necessarily to work for us, although we'll, we'll probably try and get him to do something for us. But, uh, you know, I think he's trying to make more millions, I think, while he's going over there. I think he wants to buy a Learjet next. <laughs> Very likely. Very <laughs> likely. I, I'm, I'm dreaming of Oshkosh as well, but I think with a wedding next year and the reality of my income levels, uh, it'll just be a dream. Yeah, well, you never know, Grant. You never know. We might become rich doing podcasting. You never know. <laughs> Sorry while I fall off my chair laughing. <laughs> anyway, I think that just about wraps up uh, 2013 for the podcast. Uh, folks, once again, we appreciate your support. We've had uh, you know a lot of uh, new listeners uh, coming on board this year. Our stats are up. We're very, very happy to see that. Uh, we want to uh, thank a, a number of people. We want to thank all of our team for uh, working so hard for us this year. And, uh, you know, but, but tell you what, uh, we worked them pretty hard, don't we, mate? Oh, mate, totally. Uh, we can't really pay them anything, but uh, where we can, we uh, pop the odd bit of food and drink into them and uh, get them access behind the scenes to a few uh, aviation things. And whew, fortunately, so far, most of them are pretty happy with that. I also want to uh, thank our good friends at Defence Media. That's uh, Ben Wickham, Eamon Hamilton, and uh, Catherine Twinkie Friend. Uh, particularly, we want to make mention of her fantastic golf cart driving skills over there and managing not to kill me or Grant while we were recording an Airplane Geeks Australia Desk segment at Avalon. So uh, well done there, Twinkie. You must have forgiven her, Grant, because you took her for a balloon ride in Canberra recently. Uh, it was actually in the Hunter Valley up near Sydney. And uh, yeah, it was going up there, had some space, uh, took Cat along, and uh, also took Dodley, Dan O'Donnell, who had, uh, last time we saw Dan O'Donnell, he was taking me up for a uh, bit of an aerobatic ride in Matt Hall's Extra 300 on the day that my stomach didn't want to talk to me and wouldn't let me pull more than about four or five Gs, and I was most disappointed. Despite this, I still took Dodley for a flight and didn't push him out of the, pl- of the basket, and he rather enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, he's flown just about everything else. It's about time he got his balloon license, I think, Dan O'Donnell. Yeah, yeah, there's a point. Come yeah. on, Dodley, when you're not going Mach 1, well, how about um, coming along and uh, doing a bit of uh, bit of balloon flying with us? Yeah, well, he's not doing Mark 1 now. He's, uh, he's, he's finished up his uh, recent tour of flying Hornets, so crikey. Maybe he's gone back to flying Cessnas, who knows? <laughs> oh, Something I wouldn't change. mind doing myself, actually. Yeah, well, it's about time. I think 2014, mate, you've got to get your uh, license renewed. Yes, well, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I keep talking about it. It's only been five years now, but <laughs> life keeps getting in the way, Grant. But, uh, you know, my family did buy me a nice Jepson pilot's bag for Christmas. I think they're giving you the indication that it's okay for you to go fly, mate. Yes, I don't think they realise what they've let themselves in for. So, uh, you know, look <laughs> out, look out. Well, once my knee's working again, I'll, I'll be getting up there. Well, we, you can come back and say, well, you did give me the pilot bag. That's uh, tacit approval for me to do whatever. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, we want to thank everyone who's uh, seen their way clear to make a donation to the podcast this year. We don't talk about it too much, but uh, we do have a donate button there. And if you'd like to send us money, we'd love to take it from you. Uh, you can find that donate button on our website. We also want to thank all our wonderful advertisers and sponsors. We do it a little differently here on this podcast, uh, selling advertising. Uh, it, it certainly does uh, finance uh, all of our activities throughout the year and allows us to get around Australia and in some cases around to other countries and, uh, you know, get out there and uh, find all sorts of fantastic content for uh, all of you people who are listening to us. And, uh, you know, uh, without the advertisers, we just couldn't do that. So we want to extend our appreciation. We've picked up some new ones. We've lost a couple as well who've chosen to go other ways and that's fine. We always appreciate all the support we get from all of them. And uh, also I want to finish up as we do every year by uh, thanking our friends over there at the Airplane Geeks podcast, the podcast without which Grant, this podcast would never have started. <laughs> yeah, it's their fault. They're responsible. The Airplane Geeks crew, they're the ones who uh, convinced us to start recording. And from there, well, PCDU grew. Same as uh, P- 
Peter and the extended crew have grown out of his Across the Pond segment. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, Peter Johnson over there and uh, the crew at Extended, they're doing a fantastic job and uh, they're always looking for more support at that podcast. They work very, very hard at it. And Peter, I can tell you, he works tirelessly at it. And uh, I noticed for Christmas, Grant, that uh, Peter actually got a uh, stack of new audio gear. So, uh, Excellent. Excellent. Well, he did also make reference in one of their recent episodes that, uh, you know, condolences on the knee, Steve. But now that you're grounded at home, lots more time for him to uh, pick your brain on uh, audio work. <laughs> yeah, well, he's always well. Welcome to do that, mate. <laughs> and I tell you what, uh, Grant, uh, last but not least, uh, as we do every year, we want to thank all of our listeners to the show. Without listeners, well, well, there wouldn't be any point in us sitting here all the time making these shows. So we want to thank uh, all of you for, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing us the honour of listening to the show. It really does mean a lot to us. Um, we work very, very hard at it in our own time. Uh, some people don't realise this, Grant. We actually do have day jobs outside of the podcast. And uh, we work very hard to present to you, you know, a program that uh, highlights aviation in this part of the world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a great pleasure to make it. And uh, I always feel uh, really really good about the fact that people take the time to uh, download our podcast once a month as it's only been lately every three or four weeks but uh, you know we really do appreciate people listening to our show we also have to say that we uh, <coughs> definitely appreciate the um, willingness of our lovely partners and uh, families to allow us to have the time to do these recordings and uh, not be banging on the studio door and saying go on you've got to do family stuff yes well if I don't get out of this studio Grant that's probably exactly what's going to happen so let's wrap up the show and let's wrap up the year sounds like a good one to me mate uh, let's get this one out before the clock chimes midnight and it's 2014. So uh, I guess we'll wrap it up and we'll talk to you all again next year. Have a uh, very safe uh, New Year's period, folks, and uh, wish you all a very uh, prosperous 2014. We'll see you all again next year. And i tell you what, Grant, when you're looking around for podcasts next year, you should always remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McHeron, Anthony Crichton-Brown and Damien Rose. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks.